0: Docu series on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. to the can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I not get you out. And obsession leads to murder.
1: Who did this to your family?
0: You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control of desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family, the Solantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories,
1: and of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. I am your one star host, Chris Cervino, and as always, joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard. I got a simple question for you to start this show. I know your nickname is Hurricane, but do you actually like rain? Because this is a rainy Wednesday in Southern California. I do like rain,
0: only because it's so sunny and clear. 90% of the time living in Southern California, you do welcome the season. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of the rain and the snow and because we don't have to live through it very often. It's a nice change up from the normal 76 degrees (laughs) and sunny, you know, almost every day of the week, except for obviously in the IE in the summer, it does get uh, considerably warmer. But even then, you know, there's a lot of days where it's, uh, you know, 80 degrees, 85 degrees. It's, it's not a huge difference from, you know, the rest of the year. It's 300 and probably, Thirty-five days of very similar weather in Southern California. You said it was
1: raining pretty hard in the IE. It was raining up at USC's campus where I was at practice for Wednesday, so got a little soaked. But as always, I come prepared with the rain jacket and umbrella. So Gerard, besides all that, besides all the rain, do you do you know why today's episode is a little bit special?
0: It was. The first time that we ever talked about rain on the podcast this time last year?
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Good guess, though. Good guess, though. This is actually the final late night podcast of the season because USC is obviously at the end of their regular season. There is no practice next week. Well, there is no game next week. They're on their quote unquote bye week for the Pac 12 championship. Oh, wait. That's not happening. So, this is the end of the season for USC until the bowl game. And yeah, we're not doing kind of bowl practices like that. So this will be the final late night episode of the composite two-star recruits for season two and for uh, this year, Gerard. So I think what that... Do
0: you, what do you mean we're not doing bowl practices like that? What, <laughs> you kind of I glossed mean, over that. But, but, but like a bowl practice
1: doesn't... The schedule of a bowl practice is much different than like... A bowl practice of or a in season practice. It's very yeah, but painful. it still
0: could be time wise. You could still be doing them in the afternoon. So I would not count your chickens before the eggs hatch. You might be in this same. Oh, season I'm at counting. Same time. I'm counting the chickens, Gerard. They are counted.
1: They are labeled. They are put away. They're counted. Are there more than seven? Are there more than seven? There is more than seven. There is nine and a half and we're done. There's no more late night. That's it. F's in uh, chat for the half. F's in chat for the half. I don't even know what that means half the time, but we're done there, so I'm moving on, because there's a lot to get to in this episode. First of all, before I get into all that, obviously, a shout-out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits, like we do every show. You know her, you love her, Meredith schlosser one of the top real estate agents in los angeles with over 600 million dollars in sales if you want to learn more about meredith and her team go to www.meredithschlosser.com s-c-h-l-o-s-s-e-r and check out her business instagram at meredith real estate see all the postings and listings that she has going on that's at meredith real estate on instagram gerard last week we had a big episode our most downloaded episode of the entire season. So thank you very much. Really? Yeah, it was. It did numbers. It was doing numbers. And it's going to crush everything. It's still getting numbers. Because obviously, everyone wanted to hear you specifically. But the Cilantro Boys talk about Alex Grinch being fired. That was the cold open. Or the hot open, as we talked about. Because you also broke down Jim Leonard in detail, like you always do. And we had to bump a commitment for that. That was uh, the exception to the rule because the commitment always leads. We are going back to our rule for the Colt Open this week because USC picked up a significant 2024, not 26, not 25, but 2024 commitment from three-star Huntington Beach, California, offensive tackle Justin Taunau. He flipped a late commitment from Stanford to USC, Ended up, I believe he decommitted on Thursday night. Ended up committing to USC Friday morning. And, you know, Gerard, we broke that down a little bit. You broke that down with your future impact piece. But Justin Taunau, who we felt, you know, was trending in the direction of being a USC commit, was uh, a USC fan since he was young. You know, we'll talk a little bit about his timeline, but we mentioned it several times on this podcast. Six foot six. 300-pound offensive tackle from Huntington Beach. Listed as offensive tackle, but actually rated as an interior offensive lineman. A three-star prospect in the 24-7 sports rankings. Number 26 interior offensive lineman. Number 37 prospect out of California. He's number 499 in the 24-7 sports composite. Number 31 interior offensive lineman. Obviously, he held offers from USC and Stanford, but also held offers from UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Cal, Nebraska, Tennessee, Oregon State. So plenty of power five offers. But he is staying home at USC. Gerard, that gives USC four offensive linemen in the 2024 class. Another late flip for Josh Henson in the second consecutive cycle. So USC, a little bit of a bump there, getting another big offensive lineman in the fold.
0: Yeah, one we saw coming for quite some time, really almost after his first unofficial visit to USC for the Stanford game, we immediately started hearing that he was potentially going to make a flip from the Cardinal to USC, a player that USC probably could have had committed over the summer. He had Mm -hmm. an official visit scheduled for the last week of June, and that visit was Cancelled by him because I think he saw the writing on the wall at that point. USC already had four offensive line recruits after the June 16 weekend that were committed or going to be committed. And that was really the limit. That was what USC wanted to take numbers wise along the offensive line. And then, of course, later in the summer, you have Manasseh Atete, the four star off to tackle from Modesto, decommit from USC, and commit to Florida State. So that opened up a spot, and I think USC tinkered with trying to get involved, maybe with some other players, but ultimately they liked Justin Talanau. Early on, he was a guy during the spring that they evaluated. He ended up getting his scholarship offer during the May evaluation period. So it was one of those things where John Henson actually saw him in person, liked what he saw, and then he got that scholarship offer. So they moved into the season. They knew that they still had a spot left. And that's when they started kind of circling the wagons a little bit, trying to get him flipped. So he's a player that from a standpoint of position, there's some versatility there. Uh, He does have the size and the length to potentially be a right tackle. Don't think Mm -hmm. he's going to be a left tackle. But athletically, I think he can do enough to play right tackle or eventually move inside and play off to guard listed 6'6". He's probably closer to 300 pounds at this point. And so he's a big boy. We put in a compilation video of him three games from his senior season, and that was against Los Alamitos. Uh, That was against Corona Del Mar and Ontario Christian, which uh, they just played in the playoffs a couple weeks ago. And um, it's very good film. It's actually pretty decent film. I know there was some question marks because he's playing for Huntington Beach and they're clearly not at the high level of uh, the totem pole when it comes to competition uh, and the CIF level. It's not modern day, but nevertheless, you know, Los Alamitos is a very good team. They did lose that game, but he played pretty well in that game. So you get to see him in space. You get to see him in the run game. Uh, He is athletic, and he gets out there uh, when he's getting to the second level really well for a guy his size, and uh, I think he searches out. Um, those plays pretty well when he's getting into the second level. He's got to work on, you know dropping his hips, being a better run blocker when it comes to just working the first level. and you don't get to see him go against guys his size very much. So there is that question mark of you know how physical, how aggressive is he really? Uh, spoke to uh, Greg Biggins, our national recruiting uh, analyst at twenty four seven sports. And Greg's a guy to go to all the time because he sees a lot of games as well and knows these players very well and spoke very highly of them. Right now, Justin Taunot, who is rated as a three-star player, great kind of pounding the table for him to be moved up to be a four-star player. Again, the biggest question for him is when he plays against players his size, is he able to move guys off the ball from a run block standpoint? Pass blocking looks pretty good. Uh, but just in terms of that mean streak and that nastiness, does he have it when he's playing against uh, somebody that hits his size and punches him in the mouth? And you really don't necessarily know that. But Greg talked a little bit also about the offensive line position and how difficult it is to rank just because you're probably projecting physically those players more than any other position. You know, with offensive linemen, you can literally have a guy like Chad Wheeler, who is 250 pounds coming out of high school and is going to end up being closer to 300 pounds by the time he's a junior in college. There's no other position where you put that kind of weight on and you see that type of growth, not defensive backs, not linebackers, not even running backs. You may put 10, 15, even 20 pounds of muscle on some of those positions, but offensive line is a position where you could potentially put 50 to 60 pounds on a player. So you never really know What they're going to peak like physically when they get to that point. So there's definitely a lot of projection. There's more room for error, but I think this is a very good solid get for USC. Uh, Looking at the class as a whole, I think it's another decent class. USC follows up a full class from last year, and you had in that class Alani Noah, who started the first game of the season for USC. Uh, Elijah Page, who got some good reps earlier in the season as an offensive tackle, probably the closest thing USC has recruited as a franchise left tackle since Austin Jackson. It's been a very, very long time since they recruited a top-end offensive tackle from the high school ranks. That's probably the biggest knock on this offensive line class for 2023. You don't have that pure offensive tackle. I will say, however, looking at Manasseh Tete, who is really what Justin Tana, is kind of replacing in this class. Yeah. And Greg felt this way too. And I was a little surprised, but I mean it stands to reason. Manasseh Tete, his ranking as an offensive tackle is based almost entirely on potential. It's the fact that he's a former basketball player. He has good footwork because he played basketball. He has very long arms. He's high cut he on paper looks more like what you would potentially see in an NFL offensive tackle, just in terms of his profile and his background. However, in terms of his production here and now, and we saw this at the Under Armour camp, he's got a lot of work ahead of him to be able to be a dominant offensive tackle at the college level. It's not saying he can't, but certainly you don't see him right now and say, Wow, he's really dominating. I mean, we saw him play head to head against the 2026 defensive lineman and got cooked a bit in those one on ones. And so, you know, when I say is definitely about potential, you're not going to see him play next season. You may not probably even see him play after a redshirt. Whereas Justin Thomas, you can actually see him potentially playing. in Greg felt, Even by his redshirt freshman year, he could be a guy that could contribute. Not necessarily a starter, but a guy that could get in the rotation and play some minutes for you. And so from that standpoint, it bolsters this class a little bit. The number one player in the class is the number one interior offensive lineman in the 2023 class nationally. And that's Jason Zandamella. And then you back up uh, maybe Makai Siana, who, we think is going to play interior, maybe gets a look in the exterior, but on film, he to me looks more like an interior offensive lineman. And then Hayden Treder, who is another guy sort of like Treater. Taanau Treater, excuse me, uh, another guy like uh, Taanau, who could end up playing in the interior, uh, but is and has been at times rated as an offensive tackle. So six six, you know, three hundred five pounds. Kind of similar to Tom Nau in that way, where the ceiling is probably higher for him playing on the interior, but at the college level in a pinch could potentially play right tackle. So there's some personnel position versatility with this class. You've got guys like Zandamela who's going to play center. He's a center through and through. And then you've got guys like Treeter and uh, Tom Nau who could kind of move around a little bit, shift around a little bit, like maybe a Jonah Monheim. Granted, I think with Jonah, that's a bit of a stretch, him playing left tackle, and we've kind of seen the results of that this season.
1: An important pickup for Josh Henson, who has now picked up nine high school offensive linemen over the last two cycles because USC frankly needs those bodies. They need to replenish the depth chart of that offensive line room. They were really down in critical numbers and yeah, it's going to take a little bit more time to build that up. And Josh Henson is going to have the opportunity to develop these high school offensive linemen. USC has had success in recruiting guys out of the portal. They haven't all worked out as we've seen this season, and they're going to need probably to hit the portal once again for some experienced veterans uh, this offseason because you're losing, you know, Jared Kingston. You are losing Justin Dietrich and that center spot. A huge question mark going into next year. Who is going to play center? I would not be surprised if they went and got a veteran center out of the portal. And is Michael Tarquin going to be around? I don't know. Jonah Monheim. You know, that's a guy who could easily jump into the NFL draft. I, I Right now, I put him like 70% leaving. So there are a lot of holes you're going to have to fill. I know you got some future prospects that have played this year. You have Mason Murphy, who's obviously, you know, spent more time interior. Uh, thanks to Gerard Martinez, of course, uh, <laughs> no. calling that no. one. Uh, Alani Noah, you're hoping, you know, he only played super early and hasn't really played uh, a lot since maybe you can get some confidence in this bowl game at the end of the year. You're hoping that Elijah Page and even Tobias Raymond maybe can make the jump a little bit to, to contribute. I know a lot of people are pegging Elijah Page to crack that starting rotation next year. So there are some you know, options on the roster you, you're probably going to have next year. Uh, Gino Quinones, who Lincoln Riley mentioned, they were hoping to have him back for next season. You know Obviously, he's a veteran. Maybe he's your center for next year, or maybe you just keep him at the guard spot and go get one out of the portal. So a lot of question marks for Josh Henson and Lincoln Riley rebuilding that line for the Big Ten season in 2024. So very important to keep bringing in high school bodies, and you know the hope is less and less down the line. You're gonna ha- you're gonna have to rely less on uh, transfer portal guys on the offensive line uh, as they move through the through the uh, as they move forward.
0: Yeah, I would interject that the center position is going to be interesting because you do have Micah Benuelos there, and I know they like him. He's got potential uh, as a redshirt freshman to come in and, and play big minutes for them. But but I but I will say he
1: has struggled it, at learning center. Not, not that it's like he's bad at it. It's just like been he's had to work on his snaps, and it's just been you know
0: it's not as smooth as one would think. Well, yeah, he has to learn the position. And that's why Jason Zandamela has a chance to compete for that starting spot. And it's a lot to ask of a freshman, and I wouldn't expect it. But Zandamela has been a guy that's moved around a bit too. You do not have too many high school centers that actually play the position who are highly ranked that move immediately to that position in college. Justin Dijek is kind of an exception to the rule – most of the time, you're recruiting guards or even offensive tackles in some respects to be your offensive centers. And so that's a unique situation to be in. And, and Michael Benuelos is learning it. Zandamela, Zandamela will have to learn it as well to some extent. But I think you have some talent there. And while You mentioned Gino Kenyonis is another guy. I think Andrew Millett has played some center, even as well.
1: Even Cooper Lovelace. You know, they've all been working center after practice every day. Everyone gets center reps.
0: So you have some depth there, even though it doesn't appear like that at face value. You do have some depth there. I will say, I think every school, I mean, not every school, but probably 99.8% of schools are always looking for offensive tackle talent. Very few have established left tackles who they are confident in and they don't think that they can bring in another guy to help their depth chart. So USC will keep their ear to the ground and they will be aware of any potential left tackles that can come in. I don't think they're going to just sit on their hands and go with what they have at offensive tackle. It's a roster, which is a bit more backlogged on the interior than it is the exterior. And that stands to reason because Clay Helton had done such a bad job recruiting the offensive tackle position for so long. They went three, ta- three cycles without really signing a true um, mm. offensive tackle that you could kind of hang your hat on and say, well, this guy's the future. And so now, you know, you're dealing with the repercussions of that. They are at least getting some depth at the offensive line and they are bolstering classes. The one thing that uh, the Pete Carroll era suffered from to some extent was depth and not having enough interior guys said this many times. Pete felt like over recruiting the interior offensive line, you you potentially had dead weight on your roster because you couldn't move those guys around. It wasn't like, you know, having a receiver that just wasn't cutting it receiver and then, you know, putting them over as a defensive back or having a safety that just wasn't all that great, maybe a little slow. So you move them to a the linebacker. You really can't move an offensive guard anywhere or an offensive center anywhere if they're not playing to expectations. So uh, with this um, staff, I, I do like that they are putting more emphasis on getting depth because where I understood that philosophy fee from Pete Carroll, I think it, was somewhat of a detriment and it and it became something that was an issue, especially during the off season when they're trying to practice in spring ball, and you had to move some guys around even initially at the end of the season. You know it's one thing to look at your depth chart on game days, but it's another thing to look on your depth chart throughout the week. and when you have to prepare and you need to have bodies there uh, in your second team, your scout team. Uh, that can rotate in there and give you fresh minutes and keep your first-team guys uh, b- basically healthy. You know, they're not just killing themselves in practice. That is if you're doing physical practices. If you don't have physical practices and you do what Clay Helton did, no tackle November, uh, then it doesn't really matter. You know, your first-team guys aren't really having to, uh, to, to withstand a lot of physicality in practice to begin with. But uh, I think, you know, philosophically it's, it's a better move Uh, for USC to continue to have these classes where you've got at least three guys in a class, three guys, four guys. You know, they had five guys a year before. I think that's a good thing. And like you said, this is a four man class right now, but potentially could be a five or even six man class looking at uh, the portal. It's just dependent on what type of talent is available there and who you might be able to grab. And if you if you can get yourself a pure left tackle, man, you go for it. That's that's a that's a huge huge franchise type position, and one guy that we don't mention very much in this conversation of offensive line that we should, and I don't want to imply anything, but Walter Matthews, the six seven two hundred forty five pound tight end out yeah. of Ohio, Georgia, he's got the look of him. Uh, you know when you start. Profiling, I've said it from the
1: beginning, Gerard. I've said it from the beginning. I just want that on record.
0: When you profile first round draft pick offensive tackles. A lot of those guys are multi-sport athletes, and they did not come into college at 300 pounds. A lot of these guys were 250, 260. So we'll see what happens with Walter Matthews. Certainly, USC has not done all that well utilizing the tight end position the last two years. Uh, They do have the sort of, hey, we use our tight ends in the slot, and Deuce Robinson is kind of a tight end wide receiver it's just semantics really, you know, it's like when they were saying that uh, Drake London was a tight end until he wasn't a tight end. So I think, you know, from the standpoint of if you're looking at the true tight end position and with USC, it's sort of a Y, and then there's an H back there, you know, they use Lake McCree, more of an H back and and a lead blocker. I think that's going to be the evolution of the offense going forward. I think you're going to see, The H-back be a little more of an H-back. You're going to see personnel in terms of body types and what they can do be a little more defined for the offense than it has been because we're still seeing USC and Lincoln Riley work with the talent that they had from the Clay Helton era. And now they're going to be able to interject guys that are more what they want and what they're looking like. And they're figuring it out also to some extent because, like you said, we saw Mason Murphy. Playing right tackle a lot, he even played some left tackle, and that to me was not going to be his best position. Now he's playing inside, he's looking a little better. He's still having issues with pass protection, but that's one of the reasons why you don't want him at opposite tackle. <laughs> Those issues are uh multiplicative when you have uh, an edge rusher that's a good speed rusher and you're going to get your quarterback killed and the interior uh, you can cover that up a little more and he's still got to develop more but you know jared kingston which was a bit of a shock that they were using him as a right guard for as long as they did when he played left tackle at washington state and was i think wasn't he like a second team all american or a second team all conference player i should say I still kind of scratch my head at that whole thing, but it it seems like going from how they played against Washington and how they played against Utah specifically, because there've been a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde since the Notre Dame game where that was the worst performance from the offensive line, in my view, Uh, they've actually played okay against some of the better competition. Um, And then even against Oregon, uh, they actually played pretty well as an offensive line. So it's interesting uh, to see you know, how they move these guys around and, and how they're playing and then the future of what the offensive line is going to look like. And I felt for a while that this year and especially next year, this was going to be an offensive line, which would have the potential to be a very good run block offensive line. Now, you need the run calls to be able to run the ball to see the run blocking. But nevertheless, there has been flashes of that. We have seen that, whether It's uh, Mason Murphy moved inside with Jared Kingston or even, you know, earlier in the season uh, with the lineups that they had. uh, They've shown that they've gotten some very good young uh, yards per carry averages. And it's just a matter of whether Lincoln Riley really wants to trust in that, really wants to win that way. Um, You may not have a choice um, as you get into this time of year and you're playing In the Big Ten, you know, and you're on the road at Purdue or you're on the road at Northwestern, Ohio State, Indiana. And, uh, you know, it's windy and it's 46 degrees. And, you know, throwing the football is just you're going to have less consistency uh, just depending on the weather. And so you're going to have to run the ball if you want to win. If you don't want to win, then, you know, you do what they're doing now.
1: Last thing before we move on to our next topic, I forgot to mention Keelan O'Connor, the preferred walk-on who is actually the backup. Right now it's a Justin Dietrich and has actually had to come in a couple times. They really, really like him, and he might be a guy that picks up a scholarship offer next year. You know, if they have one left over, they've been impressed with the way he's been playing. Obviously good enough that he is the backup for this team. So maybe, you know, preferred walk-on turned scholarship center for next season. And maybe maybe he's the future. Even Josh Henson, like O'Reilly, I both said they think he can play here and have an impact here. So we'll see Killian O'Connor leave his name out there for a potential— center guy down the line gerard you part of our hot open last week after talking about alex grinch we also spoke about hot board candidates well i say candidates because that was the plan but you went in extreme detail for jim leonard the number one guy on a lot of people's lists usc fans their personal list for who they want to be at the top so we decided kind of in the moment that we would try to do one hot board candidate per per episode. You would talk about a specific. You would do a deep dive on a specific candidate, and you've been uh, deep diving into some defensive coordinators for the last you know several days. And you know you're gonna get to take it away. I I, I mentioned that maybe the uh, the board will decide who they want to go. You said no. I want to talk about who I want to talk about. So, Gerard, you did Jim Leonard last week. Who, who's calling to you right now? Who is calling to you that you want to talk about on the second installment of the Hot Board Breakdown?
0: I wish they were calling me. That would make it even easier. But, uh... That's true. That's true. I think the main thing in going through this and just picking on who you start to research on, it's A matter of circumstance, I think it's easier for us to talk about the coaches that are in positions right now that they could potentially walk away from immediately. I think that's the important thing. We could get into talking about Dave Aranda. I'd love to talk more about Dave Aranda. We talked about Dave Aranda as a potential head coaching candidate before Lincoln Riley took the job. A cilantro boy, Gerard. I know you want to talk about it we've I, you want to talk about him we have already talked about him uh, to some extent and so it would be easy to go back and and discuss some of those things and really the evolution of Dave Aranda since he was um 11 and 2 sugar bowl he was a hot name and it's very interesting because now he's terrible just just like all the other coaches that are winning, it's what have you done for me lately? And so, you know, or Aranda, there are some that believe he could be potentially fired from Baylor uh, having his third losing season as the Baylor head coach. I've asked around, and I don't have any direct connection to anyone that even really covers Baylor, quite frankly, from day to day that would know if there's something really brewing there. I don't think there is. I think he's got another year here ahead of him. And then they're going to make that determination because they did give him an extension. So in Aranda, like some other uh, candidates, it's a little harder to see, not saying that it's impossible that he doesn't become available. I just think sitting here right now, it's a little harder to see. So The one guy that I – two actual candidates that I started in on, one was Jeff Collins, the former Georgia Tech head coach, and then another was Jimmy Lake. And I started actually in on Collins and then sort of pivoted into Lake, and Lake is who I've been talking about with various different sources the most, uh, certainly, out of the gates just trying to get an idea whether – Jen Cohen would consider him the USC AD who came from Washington fired Jimmy Lake as head coach at Washington. And there have been some claims that they did not end things well, and that they were at odds when Jimmy Lake was fired. I had some pretty good sources. And Shotgun actually had a couple of sources at Washington as well. Both tell us that Jen and Jimmy Lake actually ended things on good terms. And I was told specifically that Cohen really, first of all, pounded the table for him to get the job and to be promoted when Chris Peterson left and then pounded the table to make sure he was not fired for cause, which I think that, that, probably holds a lot of water seeing how everything went. Uh, He was fired by Washington and, from the outside looking in, I didn't really have anybody tell me this feels like his conduct was used more as an excuse uh, to fire him. He had an incident where he pushed a player and kind of smacked him on the head uh, with his helmet on, on the sidelines. And we actually posted the link to uh, that video in the war room this past week. And it's something that you would see at Pop Warner games, quite frankly, you know, whether that's right or wrong, it's just one of those things where one of his players, freshman linebacker was jawjacking with some players from Oregon. They're on the sidelines and he kept doing it and he kept going into it. And it's one of those things where he just wasn't understanding that you're going to get a flag. You keep, you know, shoving guys and getting in their faces. You know, the ref is going to eventually come over there. And so he pulled them aside and pushed them to get over on the, the sideline and smack them in the helmet. And that became, you know, national news all of a sudden. And then there were some other allegations One uh, where he had supposedly shoved a player in the locker room. And that was disputed by other team sources. It just kind of seemed like one of those things where I don't think the boosters, maybe the board, were on board with him being hired to begin with. And they wanted an offensive coach. They wanted somebody to kind of do what Peterson was doing. And uh, they were at odds there. And, you know, at the end of the day, the athletic director is going to have to make that That hiring or make that firing. And that was what Cohen did. But from what I've understood, the biggest probably obstacle um, from that standpoint is not the relationship that Jennifer Cohen and jimmy lake have being an issue it's more jimmy lake's not a big fan of the air raid offense and he used to go back and forth and i read several articles where he was quoted basically talking about the air raid offense being dog water and being seven on seven and not physical enough and it's really really interesting because he's going against mike leach who is lincoln riley's main influence and mentor from a coaching standpoint and he called it out and said, it's just not good football. And guess what? Jimmy Blake was very, very successful against Washington State when he was the defensive coordinator, whether he was a co-coordinator uh, with Pete Kawakoski or he was the prime uh, defensive coordinator at uh, Washington. So it's a very interesting defense. Jimmy Lake himself comes from really NFL roots. Which is interesting because he really is looked at and thought of as more as a college guy because of all his time spent at Washington and Boise State before that. But uh, truth be told, you know, he spent time with the Tampa Bay Bucks. He had two different tenures with the Tampa Bay Bucks coaching under Monty Kiffin. And then after he was at uh, Tampa as an assistant defensive backs coach, he went to Detroit under Rod Marinelli. Uh, Rod Marinelli, who is the father in law of Joe Barry, another Tampa two guy very, 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 uh, strong Tampa two roots. You would say that, you know, his, his roots to the Tampa two are much stronger than even Pete Carroll's ever were. Pete Carroll was never really like a part of the Tampa two, uh, whereas Jimmy Lake was, you know, he was there for their real big run. And it's interesting because wait,
1: wait, wait, was Jimmy Lake on the own 16 lines?
0: Yes, I believe so. I think he was a part of that. Yes, I think so. 2008? Yeah, I think that was... That I was think wow. so. That was Marinelli. Was, yeah, oh, 2006, 2006. 2006, 2007, he was with Tampa. And then he went with Rob Marinelli, who was with Tampa also. I mean, that's another Tampa 2 guy. He's a defensive line coach. He was assistant head coach and defensive line coach and was a part of those Tony Dungy, Monty Kiffin defenses and in, in, in during that run. And so, yeah, he he... A very very strong connection to Tampa too, but fast forward to where he becomes the defensive coordinator uh, or co-coordinator uh, at Washington. You know they didn't run like a four three that way. And he's really tied at the hip with the four two five, and watching a bunch of different film, particularly from two thousand eighteen and two thousand nineteen. Those were some of their best defenses. Uh, two thousand eighteen, I think they were like a total defense ranked fifth nationally, and they were at the top of the conference they had just every metric they were very 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 high um it's interesting to see how he pivots from the 425 and the 335 and it's actually Not terribly different from what Clancy Pendergast was doing in his second stint with USC. When Pendergast came to USC originally under Lane Kiffin, they were running this 5-2, which is really weird. It it was not (laughs) something (laughs) that many people really ran. And a lot of people were kind of confused and called it a 3-4. But it was really a 5-2 in terms of the personnel base that they had. And he was only there for a year. And, uh, you know, Lane gets fired, and then we fast-forward through the Sark years, and Clay is hired. Clay begged him to come back, and so he comes back, and Clancy Pendergast is running more of a 4 which is a very big shift for him because he was running really 3-4, uh, which is, you know, two-gap defense, and then they run the 5-2 with Ed Ergeron, and that was a one-gap defense. And so there was sort of that matriculation into the one gap. And then when he comes back to USC as defensive coordinator, Clancy Pendergast starts running more of a 4-2-5. And it, it's similar in how the lake ran it at Washington uh, as a base defense. And I use that term very liberally because they did pivot into the 3-3-5 three, three, quite a bit. And I'll break down sort of, you know, the differences between those two from, you know, Washington standpoint, but with USC, they're four two, five. It, it is in some ways really more of a, a, a three, three look. Um, it's just sort of window dressing because with USC, what you would have is uh, during that Clancy Pendergast year, and just looking at like the 2016 year uh, you had Stevie um Stevie T, you know, the big defensive tackle who they got that actually transferred in from Utah, and he was kind of playing over center. I don't think you really call him a nose tackle, but he was playing basically zero shade, uh, or sometimes one shade over the the center, the, the the one technique, zero technique, if you will. And then you had Machine Green, who was their three technique. It's a one-gap defense. So those were really the two down linemen. And then you would have Porter Gustin and Yuchina Nawasu playing at the ends. Now th- Porter could very easily be like a five technique in in a regular sort of three, three, five. I mean, you could you could put him with his hand on the ground. He was two hundred sixty five, two hundred seventy pound linebacker. But with, you know, USC, he was a guy that was playing just sort of stand up all the time across from Nuusu, who was more of your traditional rush ended at, at probably like 240, 245 pounds at that point in his career. I think he was you know, more like 250, almost 260 by the time uh, he gets into the NFL. Now, with Washington, uh, you have a, a similar thing where you have like three different players uh, that are lined up. You've got Greg Gaines, who's you know like 315 pounds, Jalen Johnson, who's like 280-something pounds, um, you had Tevis Barlett, who was the linebacker. It was like 233. And then you had um, Benning uh, Potite. I-, I forget how to pronounce his last name. Potote, I think, is how-, how you might pronounce it. He's like 277 pounds, and he's like an outside linebacker. But that's just, again, window dressing. Yeah, he's standing up in a two-point stance, but he's 277 pounds. You know, he's not like your typical outside linebacker. Uh, you don't have outside linebackers that are going to usually be that big. So it's a little bit of window dressing for really a 3-3-5. Three, three, and I thought that was very interesting because Jimmy Lake, again, his roots are with the NFL. His roots are with the Tampa two, But he didn't do that at Washington. And he definitely adjusted very quickly, like almost immediately when he became the play caller. And he actually took over uh, play calling duties from Pete Kawakoski. Uh, They just decided, you know, we want to keep Jimmy Lake around. He was getting uh, recruited away from Washington by Florida State, by Colorado, like all these different schools were starting to look, you know, at Jimmy Lake. And that is what tends to happen when you have co-coordinators. You know, one of those guys is going to probably get poached and you got to figure out, you know, which guy do you want to keep? Well, Washington's idea was, hey, Chris Peterson said, Pete, if um, you're cool with it, Could we make Jimmy the guy that's calling the plays? We'll keep co-coordinators, but, you know, he'll be the play caller. And he ended up taking the play calling duties over in 2018. And he and Pete were basically running that defense up until 2020, I think. Um, And uh, so it was like the first year, I think, up until the first year where Jimmy Lake was uh, the head coach, you know, because he took over during that COVID year. So interesting on a lot of different levels, uh, just the fact that, you know, they're A one gap defense. They had some really good uh, defensive back play. Uh, You know, he's always going to have five, or excuse me, five defensive backs on the field, three safeties. And that actually comes even from the NFL, which I never really thought about this, but they were using a lot of five defensive backs, even with the Tampa 2, especially a little later on because they had Ronde Barber. I Rondé Barber was a really good hybrid player that they could keep on the field instead of a Sam linebacker. He he was a guy that was very good up front. He was good against the run. He could play man coverage. He could kind of do it all. He was a you know Pro Bowler, and they would they started to kind of lean on using him on the field in their base base uh, defense against eleven personnel more than they did an actual Sam linebacker. So that was kind of the beginnings of him embracing the five defensive back look and having an actual nickel personnel as your base defense, as opposed to just bringing in nickel personnel when you're in a passing situation. So that four-two-five is where he started to, to lean on that. And again, sometimes it's a legit four two, five. Sometimes it's really more of a three defensive lineman. Just one of those guys happens to be standing up with the actual linebacker and the line of scrimmage. There's a lot of different looks that he gives and he has, but I would say that the physicality is, is like you see that defense hit people like that's a big difference between watching his defenses and maybe Justin Wilcox's defenses beforehand up in Washington. Just one of those defenses were in the open field. Those guys tackled and the offensive ball carrier went down in one-on-one situations more often than not. And so he is above all else a very very good defensive backs coach and you would uh you know want to pair him with some guys that you know were were very good up front um he he would probably put together a pretty good west coast staff and from a recruiting standpoint He's recruited a bunch of very good players. I mean, they beat USC head-to-head for a bunch of good defensive backs, guys like Julius Irvin and Byron Murphy. Um, you know, he had Bubba Baker up there. Trent uh, Tyler Yeah, Trent, Trent McDuffie. A lot of players that he was able to beat USC, USC out for and not just recruit but get those guys drafted. You know, they had a good run of defensive backs drafted during those years of Jimmy Lake. And so that, it just pays it forward for your recruiting because then you're able to kind of – put those guys out there and enlist. Hey, look at these are the guys that I'm not only recruited that were good players, but they left here considered good players. And so, yeah, there's a, a lot of interest here uh, from that standpoint. I think one thing from an administrative standpoint, there would be maybe questions uh, about him because USC has been so conservative and it seems like they try to get away from any potential scandal to the point where they end up being in a scandal Uh, I don't know how all of that goes down, but this, I think, defense would be – there wouldn't be the big jump personnel-wise that you would have to make like you would with Jim Leonard, running a more traditional 3-4, particularly. And, again, 3-4, 4-3, 4-2-5, whatever, the, the alignments are really not as important or the personnel packages are not as important as the fact that, Are you a one-gap or two-gap defense? Because that in itself is going to require different types of players. That's really at the base level what you have to consider when you're considering what type of defense are you going to run. And for USC, the one-gap has always just been more successful because of the type of players that are readily available on the recruiting trail, the types of defensive linemen you're going to get. Guys like Rasheem Green and Leonard Williams versus – Some type of, you know, Terrence Cody type of 350 pound nose tackles, which you're going to have to go down south or at the very minimum go into Texas and try to pluck those guys out of there. And I'm not saying that you can't do it. There's some talk about, you know, the, the different defensive coordinator candidates that are out there and the potential staffs that they put together with NIL, with the transfer portal. You could get a guy like a Bear Alexander potentially. Yeah, it makes it more possible that you could run that type of defense, but you are kind of going to have to make a big adjustment. And certainly with the current roster, I don't know where guys like Stanley Ta'afu line up in that type of defense. It just those guys don't exist. You know, 270-pound defensive tackles do not exist in that type of defense. Really in that type of defense, you want three 300-pound guys on the defensive line. So. From a personnel standpoint, there would be less of a transition with a guy like Jimmy Lake, not just because he's really kind of made his bones on the West Coast, but because of the type of one gap defense that they run and the personnel. I think kind of an interesting and again, this is sort of like is it something that you know it cancels him out as a candidate, or maybe it's it's a good thing, is the fact that he's a tough, hard-nosed coach that does not like the air raid. I mean that, and it's been talked about in the peristyle and it's a very good point. The good cop, bad cop sort of scenario with a guy like Jimmy Lake and a guy like Lincoln Riley, sometimes like there's that competition and tension within a coaching staff that can be really good for the team. You know, it's the Pete Carroll and Norm Chow it's Pete Carroll being a defensive mind naturally, inclination is to be more conservative offensively. And then Norm Chow, who's like, hey, you know, Don Carriel, I want to get cute and throw the ball and do this and do that. And even with Lane Kiffin, you know, Lane is still a guy, offensive coaches tend to have egos. They want to show you how smart they are. They want to show you design. They want to do a lot of different things to confuse the defense as much as just line up and just power through you. And so you had this natural balance, if you will, with Pete Carroll and Norm Chow. And now you don't maybe have that same balance. And certainly I think if there's one criticism you could make is that Alex Grinch was kind of running an air raid type defense. It was a defense that in terms of personnel, they were going smaller. They were playing the field. They were purposely sort of doing things that you would normally do with a defense which you had marginal talent. Uh, and I think I made the comparison sort of the Graham Harrell and what they did offensively with USC kind of felt like what Alex Grinch was maybe doing defensively with USC. And when you go back to Washington State being where he kind of made his name, it stands to reason because that was a program that just like offensively with with uh, Mike Leach, you are not going to get the type of talent that you're gonna get at a USC or Ohio State or even an Oklahoma. But if that's what you know, and that's what made you successful, it's gonna be hard to pull away from that. And that is obviously not working at USC. And there's more that goes into it, of course, but that alone, when you put somebody in there like a, like a Jimmy Lake, who's definitely a lot different, and his attitude about it, Again, maybe it's a non-starter because of that. (laughs) But I kind of think like maybe it's like would be really, really good to have those two completely different opinions about what works and have those things at practice go after each other every day. I mean, you would really have a identity on defense, which was as far apart away from the offense as maybe you could get. There's not too many other coaches where, you know, the defense is going to be like, you know, those guys over there, they're pussies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's crap. That philosophy, we're going to kick their ass every day. And then the offensive coach, in this case, Lincoln Riley, is going to be like, you know what they say? You know, we're going to show them we can run the ball. We can be physical. I don't know. There's there's something there on paper, at least, that makes that very interesting. You there's a dynamic yang. there. Want some yin and yang. Yeah, some yin and yang. Yeah, that there is a there is a dynamic there potentially, which great, which maybe uh, creates this really good balance within the program, or, or maybe not. You know, it's it's hard to know, but it is um, at least on paper uh, an interesting dynamic when you think of a guy that, again, publicly has been critical of the air raid offense and and people right now that are are optimistic about the future of the program will say, but Lincoln Riley's not running the air raid offense. Well, neither was Graham Harrell really running the air raid offense, but nevertheless, that's sort of the influential roots of those philosophies that were used or are currently being used at USC. And so, you know, maybe there's things learned from it, you know, maybe you bring in the guy, Jimmy Lake, and he's doing things in practice and they're adjusting in certain periods of practice and it's like oh so we should do maybe something a little different i don't know uh but you do feel like maybe there would be a quicker evolution of sorts even offensively if you did have a real uh sort of statesman personality uh, that was very strong on the defensive side of the ball because you know obviously with lincoln riley and his reputation that's That's the face of the program. And so, you know, Alex Grinch was just kind of a compliment to that and maybe too much of a compliment to that in terms of the mentality, you know, the physicality, the aggression, just the mentality in terms of what does good football look like? I kind of mentioned that sort of on
1: Helium Boys because I think someone asked us what is like the one thing you want to see from the next defensive coordinator hire. And I kind of just said something in the moment. I said, I want someone who like pisses motor oil. I want like a dude who's not afraid to get, maybe this is the wrong turn of phrase when you're talking about Jimmy Lake, but someone's going to get in your face. Someone who's really intense. Someone who's like a sort of maybe antithesis to a Lincoln Riley. I want a guy who's his own, I want a, I want a guy who's a motherfucker you know I want a guy who's really intense and because usc's defense kind of needs that it hasn't been like dominant in such a long time and I think you need a strong personality to kind of come in there and do their thing and make a defense in the in the vein of them in the vein of themselves and you know put a piece of them into that defense and that defense in turn will have the personality of that coach who you know pisses motor oil or it can be super intense.
0: I do think that uh, an interesting dynamic to all of this is also the boxes that get checked in terms of recruiting because you really have in most cases a defensive coordinator candidate who is an X's and O's guy or he's a good recruiter that's on a staff with an X's and O's guys. He's really kind of running the defense. So you have sort of a Dan Lanning, uh, Tosh LePoy, Chris Hampton situation where Tosh is a co-coordinator, cool I think, in that system, but you know he's not the guy that's running the entire defense. And that's where the co-coordinator cool conversation comes in. Usually it works better when the head coach – is on that side of the football, so you have a guy like a Kirby Smart or what have you, uh, even a Pete Carroll. That is the guy that's running the defense, or at least can be a supervisor as to what the communication is between the two different coordinators. Whether it's a guy that's running the front and he's you know giving calls for the front, and then you have your other co-coordinator who's running the back end. You have a defensive-minded head coach who kind of can figure out and make sure everybody's accountable and doing what they need to do. You don't see it much on a team where your, your co-coordinators are, let's say on defense, and then your head coach is, is an offensive head coach. And you, you don't usually see that. So that, that's an interesting dynamic when we talk about that, uh, when you're trying to check as many boxes as possible, you know, trying to check, okay, schematically, statistically, and you know, schematically, that's something that can sort of evolve. Statistically, you know, this is the problem. Like Dave Aranda, is he is he forgotten everything he knows about defense now? Because they're so bad, and he was a head coach. I mean, I mean, Jimmy Lake, they weren't. He wasn't successful. Now, was he not successful because they gave up a ton of points? Not really. It was really their offenses that were horrible, which is ironic when you start to bring up the conversation of Lincoln Riley. I mean, holy crap. Jimmy Lake needs Lincoln Riley, just like Lincoln Riley needs Jimmy Lake. (laughs) Like Jimmy Lake needs somebody who can give him some tips on, hey, you know, you don't like the air raid offense, but it kind of works. Like we can put up a lot of points. And then on the other hand, it's like, hey, man, we run this air raid offense. We got the points taken care of. But how do we stop people? You know, how do we is this a defense, you know, philosophically overall? And this is the big question about Lincoln Riley going forward. Does he covet? Does he value a defense that actually stops people? Or is it a defense that is just going to be made to be disruptive, to try to get a possession here and there? You know, it's really a make or break. Let's just go out there and just try to get an interception. Just, just try to get a forced fumble and then we can get an extra position and we just outscore the team across from us because that was sort of what Chip Kelly did when he was at Oregon. And we've talked about that with Nick aliati and, you know, probably a lost championship there because their defenses were just Not very good so much of the time. And when their defenses were just mid, they were just good enough. And they had a bunch of NFL guys on those defenses. That's when they actually got to the championship games. But there was probably a lot of seasons there that were blown because they just could not stop people. They couldn't slow them down even. And so, you know, what are you looking for from a defense philosophically? You know, do you really want a defense that's physical? Because that might mean changing certain things. And then you have to have some compromise with your defensive coordinator. Uh, But Jimmy Lake's interesting because he's a guy that has the X's and O's. He's got pro experience, which is always good on the recruiting trail. You know, you can have a guy like Dan Lanning come in with his little cigar and talk about how he beat USC. You know, that's like, yeah, Dan, go sit down. You're you're not an NFL guy. Like, I've been an NFL guy. I've seen the highest – levels of football. I've seen Super Bowl-level defenses. I know what it's like not only to develop guys for the NFL, but I've coached NFL players. That was always a trump card that Pete Carroll had. Pete Carroll had Super Bowl rings. <laughs> he could sit down in any house, any time, and say, you know, that's that's nice. That's nice. They do that college stuff there. But, you know, I've seen the highest levels of football, and I've been successful there. So you want to come play for me, that's what you're getting. And so that's, that's a big... Box that gets checked with Jimmy Lake, along with the fact that just from the recruiting standpoint of going and getting four-star guys, right? Like you could say, hey, well, developing, you know, he's done a good job. But he's also just gone and got good players too. And guys like Byron Murphy, guys like Bubba Baker. Those are big-time players that they were able to get. He hasn't recruited a ton outside of that defensive back bubble. That's sort of his position and that's what his go-to is, uh, in terms of, you know, certainly being a primary recruiter. But again, I think you would see him probably hire a pretty good West Coast staff, which perhaps would be a good counter to the staff that they have on offense, because that's a little more of a national staff. They obviously want to go into Texas, Georgia, some other areas. I think you would have to try to get someone uh, on the defensive line if you're going to really try to go head to head with the big boys in college football that would have some type of background either in the Northeast or in Texas or the South, you know, someone that you feel like can try to get your foot in the door and get some more official visits from some of those players. Um, And that would be interesting, but there's plenty of guys that are floating around that coached under Jimmy Lake as a defensive coordinator, or even when he was a head coach at Washington guys like Bob Gregory at Stanford. um, I think UCLA has got a coach there that, that uh, that coached under Jimmy Lake. So he's got plenty of guys from the West coast standpoint, which does help when you're trying to find players, you know, when you're trying to, uh, find good players that maybe other people don't see. And that's important. It's particularly on the West coast and with your front seven, because yes, you want to recruit the best players. You want to get all the best guys on the West coast, but you also want to make sure that you have good connections and evaluations where you can pluck a guy out that nobody else sees. And that's also a big deal because, you know, with, with the lines, um, I think, you know, that's something that you can say, well, we're going to go down south and we're just going to go grab a bunch of defensive tackles from Texas and Georgia. We've said it many times before. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> Pete Carroll would have loved to do that with Ed Erdron. It's tough going. It's very, very difficult. Maybe the dynamic of playing in the big and going into Michigan and Ohio, you you might have a little more pull in those areas, the Northeast, because you're playing at Rutgers, and you can sell that. But it's tough to go national and get a bunch of defensive tackles. Uh, the portal is also something that could potentially supplement that. But you would do want to have some coaches on the staff in general, I think is important, that can do their due diligence on the West coast. And you do put up that wall on California. I, you're just not going to convince me that weak local recruiting is going to build the championship team at USC. I, I just have a hard time logically buying that. You're not going to be able to just go to Texas and a bunch of other places, put together a roster uh, and, and get this thing going. It's just not going to happen. Maybe if you were like defending three time national champion and you had this crazy pay-for-play NIL. I mean, yeah, okay, I guess so. You could literally just go out and, you know, you're Georgia. Maybe you could do that, but you're not at that point. USC is still trying to rebuild, and I don't know if you're ever going to get to the point of being dominant doing it that way.
1: I feel like we're we're moving out of this segment, but did I maybe I missed it, but did we mention what he's currently doing, Jimmy Lake?
0: Yeah, he's the assistant head coach for the Los Angeles Rams. So he has ties with Raheem Morris, who was at Tampa as well, and I'm sure that's part of the reason. But um, yeah, any you know reservations of him working with players and having anger issues? Look, he's made his his name really coming out of the NFL. He knows how to work with those players. You're not going to get away with anything crazy with grown ass men in the NFL. So yeah, that's something that I, again, I'm, I'm a little dismissive of, but yeah, he's with, uh, after taking a year off, he's now with the Rams. So he would be readily available uh, to bring in, you know um, I, I think sooner rather than later, he's not one of those coaches that's coaching somewhere Uh, that you're going to have to wait and see how their season goes before he becomes a a real candidate or not. And he's already local, Gerard already local. You did Jim Leonard
1: last week. You got Jimmy Lake this week. I'm excited to see how you play off these names for next week's episode, Gerard. So thank you again for uh, putting in some major work for our DC breakdown, talking Jimmy Lake for a potential candidate at the defensive coordinator position. Let's bounce into our next topic before our break, which is obviously USC UCLA is this weekend. We'll talk more about the actual game, but as expected with a big kind of rivalry game, local game, you can expect a bunch of local visitors for this game. USC does have two notable visitors that we do want to hit on. The first one is three-star Clarkston, Michigan athlete Desmond Stevens, who uh, Alan True reported is going to be taking his official visit this weekend for the UCLA USC game. USC offered him, I believe, last week. We didn't get to talk about it on the podcast because we, we kind of got lost in the shuffle of all things. But six foot two and a half, 208 pounds, uh, number 27 ranked athlete in the 24 7 sports rankings number 480 overall in the 24-7 sports composite projects as a defensive back. I believe USC is looking at him for that position. USC and Purdue are kind of the two main schools recruiting him right now. So this is going to be a very interesting official visit with no, obviously, defensive coordinator or your future defensive coordinator in place. And if it is a defensive back, is Dante Williams going to be on the staff next season, so it's a very interesting uh, time to bring in a an official visitor. So I wonder what those recruiting pitches are going to look like from Lincoln Riley and the interim staff. So Desmond Stevens coming in for an official visit this weekend, and the other major ones will we ha- we will still have to confirm is going to happen is four-star Sillsby, Texas wide receiver Draylon Miller you're not familiar with Draylon Miller, well, we've been talking, We he's been named that you should be familiar with if you were listening to this podcast in the spring and summer, but USC was in a tightly contested race with Texas A&M for his commitment, ended up choosing A&M, obviously uh, went ahead and decommitted from Texas A&M. A&M is obviously having uh, a little bit of a coaching change on their side of, as well. We'll talk about that later in the show, but Draylon Miller, taking a stop into town, returning to Los Angeles for this weekend's game. Uh, that was reported uh, last week or two weeks ago by Steve Wolfong. So we'll still have to kind of confirm that Draylon Miller is going to come out. So this will be a big opportunity to showcase that offense. And obviously, Draylon wants to get on the field early, and this is an offense he likely is going to be doing that. Probably won't have Caleb Williams thrown to him. But again, USC would be well served to put the best foot forward and put up a lot of points. Uh, on Saturday with Draylon Miller in the Coliseum.
0: Yeah. And that's uh, an interesting because it is an NIL driven recruitment, or at least it was prior to committing to Texas A&M. So we'll see how that goes. LSU is pushing hard for Draylon Miller, Colorado. uh, got a visit for Draylon Miller. And so we'll see, this is, I think we would call it a closing type of visit, even though it's not an official visit. Uh, it is a closer for USC. USC needs to kind of wrap this up and get it done um, sooner rather than later. You think, you know, he takes that visit and then it lingers. Then maybe it it, it turns into something like Jalen Harvey or, or some of these other uh, visits where Draylon ends up taking another trip somewhere else. And then it sort of muddies the water, if you will. Um, I think certainly an official visit from Desmond Stevens is the most intriguing this is another sort of quasi defensive back. USC is, is discussed taking six defensive backs in this class. And it's, you know, a little bit of a blurred line as to who's being who's a cornerback and who's a safety. I think talking with uh, Alan True and and some other folks that have seen Stevens play in person, they feel like he's more of a straight safety, really even more of a strong safety that could potentially play linebacker. So like 6'3", 210 pounds. Um, I think he actually was playing some running back this season and and had some pretty good uh, running games. So he's listed as an athlete overall, but it does seem like USC likes him as a defensive back. And that's an interesting class that USC has. You have Jarvis Boatwright who is uh, still committed as far as we know (laughs) uh, out of uh, Clearwater, Florida. And he is uh, more of a single high sort of free safety type. Um, And then you have Marquis Gallegos, who is uh, similar in that respect. And that seems like, okay, we're trying to make sure that we have some depth and we have some guys that are going to be able to compete for a job behind Caleb Bullock. Uh, and then you have um, Isaiah Rubin, who is kind of similar, even though we have him rated as a cornerback. He is a four-star cornerback out of Los Alamitos High School, six one, six foot and a half, 170 pounds or so. Uh, the feeling is he's a little bit more of a boundary uh, nickel safety type. So that's three potential free safeties. And, and then you're bringing in a guy that uh, could be more of a sort of strong safety potentially. Um, there was a question about, you know, is this a guy that they're going to take over Jason Mitchell, uh, the six, 190 pound um, kind of quasi defensive back outside linebacker receiver who transferred from Sarah high school over to St. John Bosco. He has not played much for St. John Bosco this year. So I, I would say, yeah, that's potentially it. Um, you know, Mitchell, was thought to be over the summer he was going to be one of those guys on the June 16th visit and he would commit and then USC sort of balked on that and it was clear they had other guys higher on their board and then kind of was out of favor uh with with Mitchell which under you know understand that when you kind of feel like you're a plan b then um you know you start to cool but then you know things sort of shifted and at that point in time coming out of May you thought Uh, going into June, Miles Davis, uh, the safety out of San Antonio. I think he's out of Judson uh, Converse High School. He was a guy that a lot of people thought was going to go to USC. And then, you know, time went on, time went on, and then he took an official visit to Texas, and boom, all of a sudden it flipped over from USC to Texas. So these things sort of shifted over the summer, and there was a spot, and then there wasn't a spot. But I think in terms of, you know, When you're looking at who would fill what positions, I do think, yeah, Desmond Stevens is probably the closest comparison with Justin Mitchell on the board that they have. And so we'll see if USC presses hard to try to wrap this one up. They're really not competing against a whole lot of the power five schools. That's one of the things that you're a little bit hesitant about. You know, if you're a Trojan fan, it's like uh, they're just taking guys here. You don't know who the defensive coordinator is going to be. That's obviously going to be the issue of trying to get him committed. Um, cause he's more of a safety and you're talking about Dante Williams, but you know, Alex Crinch was the safeties coach at USC. So yeah, it's one of those things where right now, Lincoln Riley's just kind of recruiting for the defense and telling defensive prospects, uh, just across the board, whether they're targets or they're guys that are actually committed. Hey, we're going to go out there. We're going to get the best defensive coordinator there is and have trust. Well, maybe in that.
1: Maybe that's also a good sign for Taylor May is the safety coach do a little recruiting. Maybe, you know, he's sticking on for the staff, maybe just going back to an analyst role, but maybe they're, they're going to let him uh, recruit a little bit this weekend.
0: Yeah, potentially. Uh, again, it's hard to really know. Uh, it's one of those things where I think, and we talked about this probably the last few weeks and I stand to say that the defense has played to the level that nobody's safe. And you really have to give your incumbent defensive coordinator—that's uh, not the right word, right? Com- incumbent means he's coming back, right?
1: Your, yeah, incumbent is your returning, returning.
0: Yeah, that's the
1: so. Your new,
0: are <laughs> new. Let me just use a a, a, a regular uh, non SAT word. Their new defensive coordinator needs to come in and have uh, you know sort of uh, a blank slate and. Make whatever moves he needs to make, and if he feels like, hey, you know, I really like what Taylor Mays brings to the table, cool. Hire Taylor Mays. If uh, you, know, you feel like, hey, uh, Roy Manning is the guy. He's done a good job with some recruits, and I feel like I can put him at one or two positions to coach. Cool. We bring back Roy Manning. You feel like Sean Newell is the guy, and he has great relationships on the West Coast, and he's done well for even the offensive line and recruit outside his position, then cool. You, know, you want the defensive coordinator to be able to make that decision. You do not want to strap him with other hires. Normally, I would advocate for some continuity on the recruiting trail, Uh, But that's not the case in this situation. USC's defensive recruiting class is not good enough to necessarily advocate for that. And I think, again, the defense has played so poorly on every single level, on every single facet. You can pick more than one game that you have to be able to just say, you know what, man, we need to start over completely from the ground up. And so we'll see if that happens. Uh, Maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't happen. But I don't think you can recruit and um and, and certainly it it does beg the question, you know, just ethically, like should you be telling kids, hey, we want you to come in when you know you don't know who the defensive coordinator is and you don't know if that defense coordinator is gonna like you. He might come in, sit down, look at your film, and go, we can't take this kid. I mean, that's what happened with USC when Lincoln Riley came in. They were working out players and they were looking at prospects and they were just like, Yeah, some of these guys we can't take. We, we gotta tell them, we gotta cut them loose and it's uh, kind of the business angle of it but that is how it is when you have new coaches that come in and so yeah i think from that standpoint you can't necessarily make any promises uh for desmond uh, stevens and uh you know there's going to be a vision for him right here and right now but if that vision is the same vision next month uh no
1: one knows gerard i have a vision for this podcast and it's taking our first break and only break if you look at it that way so when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit about USC, UCLA, Chip Kelly, a little Jimbo Fisher, and obviously some listener questions. So we'll be right back after our break. <laughs>
0: Gerard, how was your break? It was fantastic as incumbent co-host of this podcast. See, I can learn words too.
1: There you go. I think you could have said, uh, "Never mind." I just blanked on totally what I was going to call, and as a as a uh, alternative to incumbent defensive coordinator, defensive coordinator to be named. That uh, that would have worked as well. So there, I found it once again. Uh, before we jump into the second part of the show, I just want to say a quick. Shout out to my very real girlfriend. It's her birthday today, and she asked me to shout her out on the podcast, so I'm just doing it at this moment right now. Nice. So, uh, happy well, happy birthday,
0: birthday yeah. Kristen, and happy birthday to my niece Peyton. It's uh, her birthday was actually yesterday. Oh, really? It's a birthday week for oh, okay uh, for her, and so uh, she's um, headed towards her ninth birthday here. So she's uh, gonna have a party Saturday, which will obviously uh be an issue for me um as it <laughs> always is around this time of year i've got anniversaries and i've got uh a birthday uh this week every year so it's always around the ucla game i am uh juggling you know where i am and what i'm doing
1: well she doesn't listen to this podcast obviously so what did you get her
0: um no i can't really uh discuss it right now because uh there could be some prying ears around, so I'm, I. It is <laughs> oh, a surprise. Yeah, that's right!
1: You're no longer in the garage. You're no longer in the garage. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. It, if, you're, if, if this was Garage Martinez, full on, full on spilling the beans. But I, but I respect it. I respect it. You're in the house. There is uh, opportunity to be overheard. I get it. I get it, man. Well,
0: it, at this time of year, like it is good because it gets me on the. Oh crap! I got to start buying Christmas presents. Also, it's uh, you know because I mean it, it sneaks up on you super oh. super fast. So I kind of bulk, I started looking, you know, in bulk. So I kind of have to choose like, oh, what's, what's, what's the birthday thing and what's the thing that I'm going to kind of put in the closet until a little later. So that's, that's where I am. So I actually got a, a few different things and yeah, Christmas is coming. So I'm already thinking about that as well.
1: Also a good segue for our next topics. Uh, someone who's not going to have to worry about, uh, Christmas present money is uh, Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M, decided to pull the trigger and fire the Texas A&M head coach. That news came out on Sunday. I was actually very much awake because I was writing my game day ghost notes at in a Marriott lobby at like 5 in the morning, and that tweet came out uh, over the course of, well, in that time zone, wherever it was in Texas, and Everyone was tweeting about it. So I was like one of the first people to know at uscfootball.com. And I talked to Shotgun about I was like, look, you, uh, Texas A&M firing Jimbo Fisher. About $76 million buyout for Jimbo Fisher. Uh, I would love $76 million to be fired. But that is the case. And we're going to kind of talk about this in the same segment as well. Kind of checking around Chip Kelly. Potential firing this weekend as well. So starting with Jimbo Fisher because – Obviously, anytime you recruit the way Texas a and m did, then you have a change in leadership. and you know you saw some of their players leave uh, last year with with some of the the results that they've had with with under Jimbo Fisher. So then naturally, when Jimbo was fired, when it finally happened, you know, lots of the members on the Paris style were like making their lists and checking it twice as to what aggies they wanted to raid. From the class or from their roster through the portal because now uh, Texas A&M has players have 30 days to jump into the portal. They have that window and the portal itself is going to be opening for everyone very, very soon. So, yeah, everyone now wants to know what uh, can USC take anything from Texas A&M now that Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M making a change?
0: Yeah, because it's just going to be so easy. There's no other schools that want to swoop in there and maybe poach. I'm not saying just USC. I'm just saying, can they, you know, get in
1: line and you know, you know, like at a at a bargain sale on Black Friday, people are just rifling
0: through bins. Can they just grab something? Can they grab a couple things? Yeah, I don't know. I think you know Texas A&M made the move wisely to retain Elijah Robinson, their defensive line coach, and he was a co-coordinator really by title only. And he is really responsible for the majority of defensive line prospects that Texas A&M has signed, which has been the strength of a lot of their classes. They have recruited insanely well uh, from a rating standpoint for the defensive line. We're talking five-star Walter Nolan from Tennessee, DJ Hicks, who was a five-star uh, just this past cycle, LT Overton, who actually reclassified as a five-star, who ended up at Texas A&M last year, uh, Demarvin Leal, um, Gabriel Brownlow, Dindy, who was actually a Oklahoma legacy, if I recall, he ended up getting as mm-hmm. a five-star uh, at Texas A&M. I mean, <laughs> it's a long list of guys that are like five stars and high four stars on the defensive line, which would obviously be something that USC wants and needs to get involved. And Elijah Robinson will be a commodity, but Texas A&M, as I said, they saw him as their Dante Williams. They want some recruiting continuity. And certainly with the transfer portal, it's a problem if he leaves and they bring in maybe a defensive line coach that these guys aren't vibing with. And then you have a mass exodus, and then it's a real tr- sort of rebuild on the defense for Texas A&M. So it's it's going to be interesting to see who Texas A&M does hire because their recruiting strength has been on the defensive side of the ball. Yet the rumors have been that they want an offensive coach. So that in and of itself can create some problems. Whereas if you have a defensive head coach that comes in, I think it makes it easier to retain Elijah Robinson perhaps because then you don't have to worry so much about who the defensive coordinator is, or in this case, if he's going to be a a continued co-coordinator. So we're going to have to see, you know, you have to kind of um, to to work it and and make sure that uh, everybody's happy uh, in order to retain Robinson Robinson is actually a Matt rule guy. He was at temple with Mm -hmm. Matt rule. And so uh, I think uh, he ended up going to Baylor even with Matt rule and then ended up at Texas A&M. And so, yeah, we'll have to see how this all kind of uh, comes together in terms of how Texas A&M's defense and defensive line played eh, eh, a little underwhelming considering the amount of talent they have. But, I mean, I think you would say that just in general about the Jimbo Fisher era because they did have even talent on the offensive side of the ball and, and didn't play particularly well. And the Bobby Petrino experiment didn't go any further. It literally was just like a copy copypasta of Jimbo Fisher just now as being offensive coordinator. It, it was, you know, it's like trying to get away from whatever Jimbo Fisher is doing and basically just hired the, the carbon coffee of him uh, to <laughs> to be your offensive coordinator. So the whole thing just kind of went nowhere. And, uh, but, you know, Texas A&M Aggie boosters were flexing and they were telling people earlier in the year, we'll find the money. If we need to make a move, we'll find the money. And I questioned that because I think it's a lot easier to say it than do it, but they did find the money. Now they got to find the money to go hire somebody. Um, and if you're going after uh, a high level candidate that's won a lot of games somewhere else, you're going to be paying through the nose for that guy. I mean, could they go after a Dan Lanning type who is really kind of a budget head coach right now for Oregon? You know, Oregon were able to get him probably for the same price that USC was able to get Clay Helton. He was a, a, a non head coach, he wasn't proven. Texas AM would have to pay a lot more for him than Oregon did. But nevertheless, he would still be pretty cheap in comparison to some of these other names that are floating around. So it is going to be interesting. I mean, people have talked about him. There have been some other uh, defensive type of minded coaches. Um, But for whatever reason, it sounds like uh, Texas A&M writers are mostly focused on offensive type of uh, coaches. And so – Again, that's going to be interesting because if you bring in a head coach who's an offensive head coach uh, that comes from an offensive background, he's going to go have to find a defensive coordinator. And now you're trying to strap that defensive coordinator with Elijah Robinson, which may work or may not work. I mean, it it can work. It worked with USC when they hired Lincoln Riley. And you could see that the administration kind of wanted to keep Dante Williams around. He had a great reputation as a recruiter and Lincoln Riley bought into that. He was like, yeah, you know what? It'd be good to still have somebody with some LA ties, try to keep together uh, the class, if we want to keep it together. And it came out at the end that they really didn't want to. I mean, they kind of blew up that class to a large extent. I mean, I think it was what – I mean, Damonte Jackson they were able to to keep, and I think Fabian Ross was the other guy uh, that they were able to keep. And then the rest of that class was, you know, really Brown and I think a couple of players uh, that uh, were were on the, on the defensive side of the ball. But, I mean, it only ended up being like seven signees for that class. In 2022. So, uh, you know, did, did, did that really work for USC? Was it necessary for USC? Probably not. Uh, would it be more so necessarily because you're trying to keep the talent that you have? For USC, their recruiting was pretty abysmal the last couple of years of Clay Helton. For Texas A&M, that's not the case. So I think that is more of the focus trying to keep some continuity with maybe a coach on the offensive side of the ball, maybe a coach on the defensive side of the ball.
1: Just a quick look at their current recruiting class. As you as we've mentioned, obviously, Miles Davis is currently committed to Texas A&M, uh, as you mentioned, in our last segment A Guy USC was uh, recruiting Gabriel Relliford who took an official visit to USC for the Washington game and I believe is their lowest-rated prospect in that class. He tweeted out some kind of sad emojis after the firing had happened. Uh, Obviously, one of the bigger names is Ty Anthony Smith, who was a silent commit for USC at one point before jumping with Draylon Miller to Texas A&M. Ty Anthony has... Seemed very, what's the word I'm looking for? Still very hopeful of, you know, sticking with takes A&M. He's, he's saying they should keep DJ Jerkin, who was their defensive line, defensive uh, coordinator, excuse me, and linebackers coach. He seems very hopeful that he, or it seems like he's going to stick with his commitment. Jordan Lockhart, who USC was recruiting over the offseason out of St. John Bosco as a commit. Maybe USC needing very much needing some linebackers will circle back to Jordan Lockhart. I plan on going to the Bosco game this weekend, so that's something I can check in on. But there are some interesting names in the current class and not necessarily when we're talking about Portal sniping some guys down the line.
0: Yeah, I mean Dominic McKinley, uh there's a few different players that um are, are another five star still- D line. Yeah, another five-star defensive lineman just for this class. You talk about Davis. I kind of feel like that ship has probably sailed for them. Uh, Relaford is is potential. I mean, you could see where maybe Texas A&M decides, hey, we want to kind of keep this defensive staff together. Like, we feel like we're not horrible defensively. We've got a lot of talent down the pipeline. If we could just hire an offensive coach. But, again, I I don't think that ever works. I don't think – when you're trying to strap a incoming coach with another staff, which philosophically just might not work. It's it's not their choice. You know, they they haven't really sat back and gone and thought about, you know, these guys that they don't know. There's really a lot to be said for coaching continuity on both sides of the ball, and there being a certain, like, on the same page and amount of respect for the head guy. And when you start trying to piece together staffs, I, I go back to the Rick Neuheisel dream team staff they had with Dwayne Walker and Norm Chow, and they end up at some point running the pistol with norm Chow, <laughs> it is like, what are you doing? What, what is going on here? What, how, why would you hire norm Chow as your offensive coordinator? And then all of a sudden decide, yeah, we're going to run the pistol office. It just, that kind of stuff just does not work on paper. It's total fandom. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. We've, we've, we've unified these two different worlds and now we're just going to get the best of both of them, but it just usually doesn't work. You need to go and hire a guy and just, Feel like okay, this is our guy, and and this speaks to where Lincoln Riley is right now, and Trojan fans trying to imply that Tro- that Lincoln Riley should not have the uh, leverage and ability to make decisions for the program, um, just across the board. You know, he's lost that trust. <clears throat> Sorry, you're, you're wrong. Wait, <clears throat> no. You're wrong. You're right. <clears throat> That's not the way it works. You did not hire Lincoln Riley for ten years, eleven million dollars a year. To in his third season, not even his third season, the end of his second season, say, yeah, you know, Lincoln, argh, we 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 didn't win as many games, you know, yeah, I know it's a rebuilding process and everything, but we've lost faith in you. We don't think you're a smart guy anymore. We don't think you're that eleven million dollar a year man. We're gonna try to push you into doing this or doing that. This doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not going to work. First and foremost, USC really doesn't have a lot of leverage. Uh, Jennifer Cohen, unfortunately they bring her in. She doesn't have a lot of leverage. She didn't make that contract with Lincoln Riley. She, you know, that the, the, the terms and everything that went into it, none of that is, is on her watch. So you kind of, you hired, Lincoln Riley, the board of trustees, everybody that's left at USC that um, was not a part of the Mike Bone era, everybody that's still there, they have to go with this as they went with it before Lincoln Riley signed on the line, which is dotted, and that was this is our guy, proven winner, smart guy. He's 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 a young guy still. He's on the precipice of making a huge run and being you know, the next whoever uh, to win multiple championships as a head coach. This is our guy. We are going to do what we have not done for, for many, many years, certainly not in my lifetime, and go hire a guy that's a proven winner somewhere else at a college and try to bolster everything around him to get him over the hump to where he's a championship coach year in and year out, like a Nick Saban, uh, et cetera, Pete Carroll, And you can't all of a sudden just try to hit reverse on that right now. You can't. In fact, I don't know that you can hit reverse on that for a very long time. Lincoln Riley is going to be at USC really for the foreseeable future unless he chooses, unless Mm -hmm. he chooses to go somewhere else. So leverage-wise, you you just – you're going to have to just take your medicine and hope that Lincoln Riley is that guy you hired to make the smart decisions, to see – the team for what it is, not what he thinks it is or should be. You have to hope that the coach speak that you get in some of these pressers is all just BS and that he's ready to move forward and do whatever it takes to be a championship team. Um, And, you know, as I've stated before on the message board. He doesn't he have to make that move with Alex Grinch. and I think that is a positive sign. He, and people will say, Oh, no, he didn't. I was going to cancel my UC football.com description if he wasn't going to go. And, and, and no, shut up. He did not have to make that move when he made that move. He very, very much could have just sat on his hands and said, Listen, I got a million dollars every year, I'm here for 10 years you can't make me do anything and he could go down the chip kelly route and that was the way chip ran the program and did his thing at ucla and chip is probably out at ucla now is that what we're jumping to right now well no i'm not, we're not jumping to that i'm just saying the correlation between being a hard-headed sort of egotistical narcissist type coach hey my system is better than everything it doesn't matter what anybody says I don't need to adjust. You know, it's the sort of uh, the king has no clothes, um, you know, uh, metaphor idiom where you're you're you're, you just like you can't see the 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 state that you're actually in. You're sort of blinded by it. And Lincoln Riley didn't go that route. He could have absolutely said, I'm not making a move until after the season if I make a move, because what are you going to do? If I decide Alex Grintz gets another year, what are you going to do? Oh, the fan base is going to huff and puff. Yeah, so what? I still get my $11 million. You're going to buy me out? Pfft, please. So, you know, you you could get into that situation with the head coach. And Lincoln said, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to make that move now. I think it needs to be made. It It's not going to be something that we're going to really get a whole lot out of other than the punitive sort of Fan base feels like, oh, yeah, Alex Grinch was terrible. He embarrassed me as a Trojan fan, so he should be fired. You know, you're know, you not really gaining a whole, like, your defense is going to get better overnight. You know, I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, he made the move on his own. Yeah, maybe he was walked into it a little bit. Maybe I'm, I'm sure, you know, there were people around him that said, hey, you know, it's, it's not working out, coach. You know, you might want to make a move and get, uh, at the very least, a head start. On looking at the future of, of who should be coaching the defense. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the assessment was made, and that's good for USC. You know, that's good going forward that he can he can make a, a tough choice. And again, I know Trojan fans are going, it wasn't that tough. Alex Crunch was terrible, but you're talking about somebody that, you know, he was a friend and he was somebody that believed in him to come to USC with him. It's 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 not as easy as you probably thought it was, and he still made that move now, and so that again is a good sign for USC and the football program moving forward.
1: You mentioned Chip Kelly, so it only makes sense that we jump to the Chip Kelly news. Maybe it's not in terms of Jimbo Fisher, the official uh, the an official thing that has happened, but our sister site. RuinReport.com put out a story earlier this week. I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, but reported that Chip Kelly would more likely be fired after this season, not even after this season, potentially after the USC game this weekend. If he won that game, perhaps it is delayed and he gets to coach the California game, but it pointed to all being likely that Chip Kelly is going to be fired. This season or after the season from UCLA and will mark the end of his tenure there, which, you know, looking back on Chip Kelly, as you mentioned, you know, it was his way or the highway. Well, it seems like the highway road has gotten him fired from another establishment and the fall of Chip Kelly from his days at Oregon to the NFL to now UCLA has not been pretty. So this would be another interesting uh, domino falling in the college football landscape. Obviously, a lot uh, obviously a lot closer to USC than Texas A&M. And what kind of recruiting impact? Because Chip Kelly and that UCLA staff, as a joke, you know we would say, did not do recruiting whatsoever. And I know it's a joke, but pretty much they did not recruit whatsoever. And now, you know, going to the Big Ten, UCLA going to get a fresh start, fresh voice. Who who that will be? I don't know. But I can tell you they probably will have more recruiting prowess than Chip Kelly or do obviously things a lot differently than Chip Kelly with their high school recruiting philosophy. So it's going to be interesting and what kind of fallout that has with, you know, players and staff. They have a really talented quarterback, five-star prospect, Dante Moore. Is he, is he out of there? You know, does USC come kicking the door? You know, they might need a quarterback for next season. Uh, D'Anton De- Lynn, who is their rising defensive coordinator, you know, he's right across, right across, uh, LA in the Southland, you know, do they put a call in to get him? you know, why don't you just, why don't you just come all over to the Coliseum? You don't even need to, you don't even really need to move, uh, out of Southern California, so a lot of a lot of potential ripples out of you know Chip Kelly being fired when he is actually fired, you know, as as a room report is reporting.
0: Can it be your sister site
1: when they call it bro? That's that's a really good point. I I just use sister site all the time. I feel like I feel like the correct terminology is saying sister whatever sister school sister office. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've never really heard it called brother office or brother site, uh, even though it is, you know, as you say, bro. So I apologize, but I'm just using the vernacular, you know.
0: Yeah, I think you said it uh, all, quite frankly. There's not really a lot to go off of right now. He has yet to be fired. Of course, I think from a recruiting impact standpoint for USC – Chip Kelly, not very aggressive on the recruiting trail. There's not a ton of overlap there between USC and UCLA recruiting. So just about anybody they bring in will probably compete more with USC on the recruiting trail than Chip Kelly has Um, in terms of the Lynn. We spoke about him a little bit last week, first time coordinator. You would like to see a little more there as a coordinator resume wise. Uh, It's, one of those things where sometimes guys come into a conference to a league and they hit the ground running and they have a great defense and it's more like, okay, what have you followed up with that? Consistency is a, is a big deal. Everybody has their down years. Everybody has good years. I shouldn't say everybody, some don't have good years, but uh, the up and coming names that are hot, they always have those years, which, you know, they get promotions out of those years. And then you kind of have to see what's the consistency been like and, Who have they coached under and what connections do they have, et cetera? And what they do, does it work with the personnel that you have on the roster? And if you don't have that personnel available on the roster, are they good enough at recruiting? Do they have the ties to hire coaches that are good enough recruiters to be able to get that personnel? So all of that uh, would come up if indeed DeAnton Lynn was a potential candidate for USC. We don't know what UCLA would do after the Chip Kelly era. Um, there's potential that maybe D'Anton Lynn's a guy that they transition to. They like what he's done defensively enough to make him a first-time head coach. That would be one hell of a hop, skip, and a jump from not being a coordinator to being a coordinator to being head coach all in basically the the, the span of uh three years, you know. Um so Yeah, that um, is hard to see. I think the Deontay Moore, Deontay Moore, uh, Dante Moore, excuse me. Why am I Deontay? Because I think his name is spelled with an A, isn't it? Um, The Dante Moore potential transfer to USC. I don't know what kind of relationship he has with Lincoln Riley. I think because USC kind of went in a different direction there. Uh, that's not quite as a slam dunk type of deal that I think some people would say. Uh, I liked more coming out of high school, thought he was a very good player. I thought that he did some things that definitely matched up well with what USC uh, does offensively. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily like he's just going to, you know, move down the street and, and go to USC. I think that some of this would depend on, who Michigan state hires because if they go get an offensive coach and he has some type of prior relationship, or maybe the offense is uh, more in line with uh, what uh, Dante Moore's looking at, he could might just go back home and uh, it would be sort of a moot point because Michigan state was a school that he was seriously considering uh, for a while. UCLA kind of came out of nowhere uh, Mm -hmm. with him and there was some talk like, oh, that was the one NIL deal that UCLA made. I don't know, but nevertheless, um, Yeah, it'll be interesting, I think, you know, across the board. But we really just don't know, like, what type of move is UCLA going to make? Chip Kelly was a mega, mega hire for them. It's another one of those great examples where everybody's going to say, oh, Chip Kelly, what a bum. But when they hired him, it was huge. The biggest hire that they've had uh, probably, again, in my lifetime. And it just did not work out at all. And, and I don't know if that's because of administration at UCLA, uh, lack of uh, booster support when it comes to NIL. Again, you know, Chip Kelly himself, though, didn't do himself any favors in far, as far as recruiting. They were very they were very just not interested in playing that game from the beginning, from the outset. I was already hearing not talking to seven-on coaches, not talking to – just not entertaining – that aspect of the recruiting process and that aspect, take it or leave it, is important because you are building connections and those people have their feet on the ground and are going to know what's going on sometimes in recruitments before you know what's going on up in your ivory Brentwood tower. So that was from the get-go a very It was a red flag, and you didn't know if it was just an initial red flag, like, okay, Chip came from the NFL. He's kind of used to that system. He's got to get back into the rhythm of recruiting high school players. It just never happened, And and he had a bunch of coaches on his staff, which just didn't really want to recruit either, and so that didn't help. He felt very confident clearly in his system. And so, you know, these are things that you look at across town and then you look at the situation with USC and Lincoln Riley. And yeah, I think, you know, rightfully so with uh, Alex Grinch and going through the season, there was a lot of uh, trepidation that maybe Lincoln Riley would go down that same route and sort of double down on decisions that weren't really working for him. Uh, but it, as I just said in the in the prior section, he hasn't done that. You know, he went and he fired Alex Grinch when he really didn't have to push comes to shove. And so, you know, Link think Riley is very much a recruiter, too. And people will say, oh, USC is not recruiting well. They're not. I'm not here to tell you uh, that, uh, no, nothing to see here. The recruiting class is amazing and it's up to expectations. I don't think it is. But nevertheless, Lincoln Riley is involved in in quite a few recruitments. His name personally comes up. He talks to some of these recruits more than once a week. So he's doing his thing. Um, There's obviously a lot more to it, but um, I would not compare him at all with Chip Kelly from that standpoint. Um, So, again, it it will be interesting to see what the competition is like over there. Does UCLA try to make another big hire because they feel like they're going to get that Big Ten money? I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say, you know, they've uh, broken away from the Pac-12 and to some extent the UC system when it comes to athletics. And I think that that was always something that was anchoring them a bit and not in a good way <laughs> uh, with Cal and and sort of the politics and the bureaucrats that go into that. But at the same time, uh, fiscally, they are still a part of the UC system. And so I don't know. I don't know how that um that that plays, you know, they kind of backed into that Chip Kelly thing. It it sort of worked out with them because uh really the 49ers were still paying his salary to a large extent, and there was, you know, there were some things there that it allowed them to make that move. I don't know if they're gonna find a similar situation, and you know, then it becomes maybe a little bit more of a, a Jim Mora, you know, Rick New maybe somebody that's just had some prior. Um, experience. I mean, hey, if they really want to keep DeAnton Lynn around, maybe they hire his dad. You know, his dad was a coach in the NFL for a while, and that that would be probably uh, an interesting dynamic where uh, you know his father would take over as head coach, and he could stale
1: be a defensive coordinator. Since we're on the topic of talking about UCLA and Chip Kelly, I think that is another great segue just into. Kind of our look towards week 12, which is the USC versus UCLA rivalry game. The Crosstown Battle, the rights for who runs L.A. will be taking place this weekend in the Coliseum. It's supposed to rain. I'm not looking forward to that. But 1230 kickoff for the Bruins and Trojans. Gerard, this is going to be a very, uh, what's the word? An... uh Opposite battle isn't nearly eloquent enough, but USC's defense has obviously struggled. UCLA's offense has been terrible the last two weeks. They put up 17 points in back-to-back losses against Arizona and losing to Arizona State, you know, not not great. So they're on to their third string quarterback, but their defense obviously has been very, very good and will be going up against a USC offense, which is very very good. Potentially the final time USC is going to field Caleb Williams out on the field. It will be his birthday, and Caleb Williams I believe is only gets big wins on his birthday. Last time he played on his birthday was the infamous Hail Mary throw to win the uh, WCC championship at his sophomore year for Gonzaga against my alma mater Jamatha in the final play. So he only wins on his birthday, so it could be a big day for Caleb williams as he turns 22 i think but anyway usc versus ucla gerard what are three things that you want to see come this weekend but you won't actually be seeing because you got a birthday party to attend but what things are you hoping that we see
0: yeah an interesting dynamic you did say at the outset how bad the ucla offense has been which is you know not again a good sign for chip kelly he is basically the play caller, offensive coordinator. And so, you know, when your head coach is that guy, you want at the very least your strength to be that. I do always wonder about UCLA in a season where they're losing games, how much they put into just beating USC. Sometimes I wonder, and I go back to that uh, first season with Chip Kelly when they were just so bad for so long. I I thought to myself, I think these guys are just done – Preparing for the other teams on the schedule, and they're just going to use the next three weeks to prepare for USC. And their offense has sort of played like that in the past <laughs> few games. So I don't know, man. This is one of those things, and we sort of make this meme joke that USC's defense is the best cure for any offense that's struggling. Oh, yeah. And you might think that that's sort of the case here. You know, what quarterback is the quarterback for UCLA? They've kind of gone through various quarterbacks, and that's where the talk of Dante Moore leaving the program this early, former five-star recruit comes in. But I think for USC, it's very keep it simple stupid for USC. It's stop the run. you got to stop the run, and that's really what UCLA wants to do to try to win games is run the football. And then on the other side of the ball is to run the ball. and. We know it's not going to (laughs) happen. We know we're asking for the impossible here. But even against Oregon, USC ran the ball so well and just didn't do enough of it. And you just scratch your head. You don't know why this team can run for seven yards pop and not continue to go back to it and just have quarters where they just don't run the football but nevertheless, you'd like to see USC itself run the football, and I think just no turnovers. You don't want any turnovers offensively. That's definitely hurt them here in the meat of the schedule where they've lost some games. They've had some turnovers and they had some penalties, but um, they have to maximize their possessions because the defense is probably not going to play very well again. So you can't turn the ball, ball over offensively. That's just That's a bad combination. That's a losing combination. You turn the ball over, and then you don't play good defense.
1: For me, my first point is don't make it a career day for the number three quarterback. Colin Schley, who you probably have never heard of, but if he is a household name for the day on Saturday, that means something went very, very wrong for USC's defense and he went off against the Trojans. So
0: especially, especially if we hear a lot about what he was doing. Outside of being a quarterback, if there's some storyline about how he was, a, uh, you know, working at Amazon or he was yeah. bagging groceries at Walmart or something, that, that's usually not a good sign midway through the second quarter.
1: He, w- he transferred from Kent State, couldn't find anywhere to go, so he went back to work at his family's uh, dairy farm, and then he got the call from UCLA and Chip Kelly mm-hmm. to come be number three quarterback, and now look at him here. Has thrown the for cat 250 her. yards. He, <laughs>
0: was, he was hurting cats, <laughs> and it turned out not to be a very good job. And so he decided to try out as a walk-on for UCLA, and here he is with five touchdowns versus USC in the first quarter.
1: Yeah, don't don't let him become a hot household name. Uh, get to the quarterback. Get to this number three quarterback. USC's pass rush has been non-existent for the last several weeks. In the last. 5 games or 4 games whatever they've only had 2 sacks. They have 1 sack in the last 3 games. It has just been downright atrocious getting to the quarterback. Get to the quarterback and at least more than once. You got to get those negative plays. Got to get those explosive plays on defense. You're not getting turnovers. So what can help with that? Get to the quarterback. So that that is another one for me. And then this isn't obviously something that it's like Something you want to see like in terms of like, oh, stop the run or run the ball more. I I just I would just like to see Kayla Williams go out with a bang. You know, if you're kind of on the fence about going to this game because the season hasn't gone the way, you know, you were hoping it to go. Go for the reason of seeing Kayla Williams one last time in the Coliseum, one last time in the college game. He is a special player. It's a Heisman winner. You know he deserves people to come out and see him play one more time, and I hope he goes out there on his birthday and he balls out. He loves rivalry games. He is fired up for this game, so I'm hoping that he goes out there and that offense puts on a show and he's able to, you know, walk away with five, six touchdowns, what have you. I know it's it's a tough defense, but you're in the Coliseum, you're you're trying to get this win just as much as they're trying to get this win. But, you know, you have the best player on the field. So I'm hoping that number 13 Superman can go out with a special performance in a rivalry game. So that's all I got.
0: Yeah, I, uh, you hope that Caleb Blooms doesn't press too much being potentially yep. his last game. You know, that's another thing that we've talked about can lead to turnovers because you're trying to carry the team on your back and that's kind of what goes into me hoping that they really try to run the football and they try to at least establish some ability to move the ball and to get yards and get production outside of just having Caleb Williams throw the ball 60 times a game so we'll see how that goes out and how that goes down they're playing at home there's got to be some pride here Uh, but UCLA you know can definitely frustrate them Having played very good defense, but this is also the first time that the UCLA defensive staff is going to see Caleb Williams uh, to see that offense, and that's usually boded well for for USC. We saw that against Washington, we saw that against Oregon. You know, neither of those coaching staffs had seen Caleb Williams or that offense. It definitely isn't the same as uh, seeing them against teams where they played them last year. And they've, you know, got film on Caleb Williams and they just, you know, there's just been a little bit more recon done on how to stop what USC does. And so the UCLA staff as a whole, they do know about Caleb Williams. They've seen him. And that game at UCLA was a very close one. I mean, it took a Corey Foreman dropping back into coverage uh, to uh, get an interception to, to seal that victory. So it is. Um, it's it's uh, it's one of those games, it's a rivalry game, man. I mean, it, there's a little bit of a coin flip there in terms of, uh, you know, how this one goes. You you just you just never know. I I think the fact that Chip Kelly might be on the way out, all the players are hearing about it, um, that adds a weird dynamic to the game that usually is not good for that team in question. So we'll see how that impacts things too. you know, Is this team gonna check out early? I know we said it time and time again, but how USC starts is usually pretty significant for them, uh, especially because they've been such a bad second half team. That's kind of gets lost in all the criticisms and issues about this football team this season, but they really have not played well, and of course, defensively in the second half. So they don't have some type of lead, Going into halftime, they they really struggle in those games where uh, they're down or they're not up by more than like you know a couple points or whatever. They they have a hard time staying ahead of those teams in the second half.
1: All right, Gerard. Moving on to our final topic for listener questions, Friday Night Lights. I was up in Portland, so I did not go to a game on Friday, but you did. We are in the midst of the playoffs. What can you tell me about the game you saw last Friday?
0: Yeah, I went out to go see your Belinda host, Loyola. I have not seen Loyola this year, despite uh, the staff itself, I think, between Connor and Shotgun. We've seen him three times this season. So we didn't really have great highlights of him. Uh, didn't do much in the game that Shotgun shot, and didn't do much in one of the games that Connor shot. So he's basically had one good game. Was just a guy in a game, was just a guy in another game. And unfortunately, in the game that I saw, he was okay. He, he had some decent reps. He is a uh, 2026 cornerback, great length. Uh, you see where, you know, him playing on that outside, uh, another one of those young, tall corners, and that is definitely a trend going forward in Southern California. Uh, he was playing A lot of uh, man and and really just matching up specifically on Yorba Linda's Dylan Gardner, who's been a a pretty good wide receiver for them this season. Uh, He did have a couple catches on Brandon Lockhart, but they were catches that came on like screen passes and they tried to do some things to kind of get him open. Uh, Really, he took away Dylan Gardner most of the game, Uh, but Loyola just couldn't get any offense going. I mean, they just, they they had no passing game. It uh, was one of those things where they were trying to work free. Sean Morris had an okay game. He's another 2026 prospect for him. He's a running back, about 5'10", 185 pounds. Uh, A good-looking back, more of a power back as a smaller back, didn't show a lot in the open field in terms of moves or quickness, Uh, and they just didn't really get many big plays, and that's kind of what they needed because they weren't moving the ball consistently. The one big play that they got, they had a partial punt, which one of the Loyola defenders at that point uh, re- recovered. He, he didn't recover. He caught it, and he caught it kind of towards the sideline, and I don't think anybody really realized the, that he could just catch it and run it. <laughs> it was uh, still a live ball, and he ran it back as time ran out in the first half, and it ended up being 7-6 at half uh, to show you what kind of uh, sort of struggle that game was offensively for both teams in the first half. and. Um, and so, you know, Yorva Linda came back in the second half and they ran the ball better. And uh, they just, you know, they really just kind of looked like a better overall team. They really played pretty sound all around and and were able to get those plays. And they end up uh, winning. And I can't even remember what the final score was at the top of my head. But they ended up beating Loyola. It was like 23, 20 or something of that nature. And uh, are moving on now. And, and, and a bit of an upset. You know, Loyola definitely had uh, more of the D1 talent. Uh, of that uh, of that matchup, but um, you know, at the high school level, it's, it's true in college as well. You know, the Jimmies and Joes sometimes they can't beat the X's and O's, and so it's one of those things where uh, Yorba Linda kind of um, you know an overachieving team, I guess you could say. Uh, they've got you know some some decent players here and there, but um, I think it was just more of a team effort where they were just sound and they didn't um, they didn't have too many issues with penalties and what have you. But it was a good game, good uh, high school game. I've never been up to Yorba Linda. High school, you know, really nice area uh, way up there in the hills. Actually give a shout out to Ray, who uh, is one of our listeners, who admitted he had not listened to the podcast in a couple of weeks because Mm. it was hard to be on the peristyle. And I said, Ray, shame on you. So I'm giving (laughs) him a shout out and uh, he better post in the thread for the episode. I better hear from him. Um, but he was uh, really appreciative and, and said, you know, Chris Trevino's amazing. Uh, he's my idol. <laughs> Does a great job. On okay. the podcast. Now, now you're now you're just uh, making stuff up. And it uh, just said that uh, you know he, he loved it and um, was just uh, he's been a fan of the site for a while. So that's great to hear. We get approached um, quite often these days uh, from folks uh, about the podcast, which is always interesting because it's like I don't know, you know, like all the years of, of being on the site and what have you. Um, this is not, it's like, you almost feel like this would be on video or something, but it's not, but it's like, I, we get recognized more because of this podcast. Uh, and I don't know why that is, but but yeah, we, we've been recognized by folks here, uh, quite a few few times during the season than just reaching out, which we always always appreciate. I mean, the feedback is is always good. Whether it's, you know, Hey, you guys take too long or whatever. You know, we, we, I I love that you go longer and you get into the weeds about stuff. You know, nevertheless, the the feedback is always good. And I guess we're asking for, you know, Apple five-star reviews. I mean, I'm not asking for a five-star review. I, I guess we could definitely use the reviews. I don't know if that works for this podcast though, or is that just the peristyle podcast? I saw Ryan asking about that and, I was actually shocked that there was, I think there's like over a thousand reviews. I I, I was like, that's a lot. I mean, I know there's a lot more people than that on the site, but in terms of like going out of your way to log in, to give a review, I actually thought that was pretty good.
1: Yeah. When I go obviously on the meetups and stuff and at the Coliseum, I get stopped a lot. And, you know, people tell me how much that they're fan of you and the show on the road for meetups, like 80% of the the people interactions i have are mainly about you and asking if you're going to come to a meetup so yeah. I, I i'm always glad that you do get to experience some of the fans coming up to you and telling you how much they appreciate this podcast because i i get all that you know positive feedback on the road and stuff and you know i'm when i'm out at a usc game uh i have never had it happen at a at a football game so that seems to be where you're getting it the most so i i i, I it's it makes me happy to hear that you are actually getting to hear some of that feedback and not just me, you know, reporting back to you on the
0: show and stuff. directly. Yeah. You don't get at the high school football games very much. I haven't
1: uh, maybe one person, but honestly, I, I can't recall someone not not like when I'm at a USC game at the Coliseum when I get stopped, like in the elevator or people uh, shout me out when I'm walking in the Coliseum and they're on the, st- the stands or uh, the edge of the stands or obviously when I'm at a meetup and there's like tons yeah. of USA fans and yeah so yeah n- nothing close to that a uh, high school game maybe once but
0: I'm I, I I sort of remember. unfortunately kind of unapproachable just in general but like <laughs> more so even at high school games because I'm actually filming so you know people I, I know that's like one of those things like you know he's kind of working and everything but everybody's always respectful and you know, I, I totally uh, understand it. Again, appreciate it uh, very much. Um, you know, just the, uh, hey, you guys are uh, doing something that I enjoy. And we're not just uh, doing this for ourselves.
1: Have you been asked to take a selfie?
0: Yeah, I did take a selfie. Oh, he's got okay. A selfie. Wow. And okay. he's like, he's like okay. don't worry. He's like, I don't even post on social media or anything. This is just, you know, something that I wanted to do. I was like, dude, post it. Like, I'm going to take I don't care. Like, this is not, <laughs> I, don't, I don't care about that. But, um, yeah, he, uh, he did take a selfie. Oh,
1: okay. I, yeah, I get selfie requests all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're getting them too. I'm glad you're getting them too, Gerard. And that's going to take us into our final segment, as always, is listener questions. Just a reminder, if you want to email us, you can email us at USC – or excuse me, I jumped the gun here, podcast at uscfootball.com. Just put the composite, 10K, 18K, recruiting podcast, hurricane, uh, one stars, whatever, and it will go to my inbox. We have three today. Gerard, I'm going to start with Rich in SD, who, as we know, I think he's like a streak of like 90 straight podcasts of asking or getting a question on this pod. Uh, So I'm going to start with they start there. The first part is some uh, shout outs for for each of us. I want to give props to Gerard for calling Brian Odom taking over as the D.C. play play caller. I asked the question before the season started that if Grinch would get fired during the season. Who would take over? So credit to you, Gerard, for the Brian Odom prediction. Just yeah, like your Mason Murphy. Call.
0: That was an easy call. <laughs> no, Mason Murphy thing was probably a little harder to, to call because they seemed reluctant to do it. But yeah, I'm saying had another to be, call
1: you got, another call you got.
0: He was, you know, he was the defensive coordinator for Oklahoma. You know, when Lincoln Riley left and, and Alex Grinch left, so um, I was right, but then I was always, I was also wrong because they made uh, Sean Nua co-coordinator, which I wouldn't have anticipated. I would have figured. They would have just given the reins over to Brian Odom. Also
1: props to CT for burning the midnight oil for getting those ghost notes and getting uh, getting in the Helium Boys podcast for the fans. Much appreciated. Well, you're welcome, Rich. I always try to grind as hard as I can on the road. Uh, question for G-Mart. Give me a quote-unquote no-shit date on when Lincoln Riley needs to hire a DC, considering the porthole opening and the signing of the 2024 uh, signing period. And then CT over under seven, seven USC players were enter the portal. Ooh, seven is a lot. Gerard, I'll give you a little bit of time to think of a no shit dates, uh, no shit date. Uh, so I'm just like kind of going through my head. You know, I could see like, there's like four or five guys that I could definitely see transferring out. Um, As of right now, oh, it's close. Seven's a really good number, I would say uh screw it, I will go over, but slightly over. I don't remember how many transferred last year, but my gut says seven right now or over seven, so I'll take the over
0: yeah, that's um that's a tough one. You're kind of thinking in your head the guys that might bounce. Uh, For particular reasons, and some of it might have to do with who they're able to potentially get out of the portal as well, because you kind of have to know what that talent pool looks like and then you can make a move. And I think that was something that sort of nudged some of the players out at USC uh, last year. I mean, a guy like Kyle Ford, you know, if you're not bringing in Dorian Singer, maybe he sticks around, you just never really know how that plays out. And I think of that specifically with the quarterback position. Because in that first window, if you're not 100% confident that either Miller Moss or Malachi Nelson is your guy and they are and they have what it takes. And listen, Lincoln Riley knows this better than anybody. So he's going to know, having watched practice, whether Miller Moss or Malachi Nelson is 100% the guy next year, you're going to go and dip into that portal and you're going to grab a quarterback. If you have any hesitation, if you have any doubts you got to go in the first portal because he's got to be there for spring ball. And the good quarterbacks are going to be in the first window because of that. Uh, The second window is going to be in May after spring ball. And that's going to be where guys get beat out. And you're not going after those quarterbacks that have been beaten out unless you're just looking for depth. So, yeah, if you're thinking we need to make a move and be aggressive and go see if there's a guy like Dante Moore, perhaps, Uh, It's going to probably be in that first window. So there's one position where you could say, okay, if they go after that quarterback in the first window and he is a talented player and he's a guy that maybe looks like he's going to win the job, because I kind of doubt Lincoln Riley would name a starter out of spring ball. But if the writing is on the wall, then yeah, (laughs) you could potentially see uh, a, a transfer out at the quarterback position. So, I mean, you've got guys like Darren Barlow, uh, Barlow, who still have, uh, some some eligibility, and and we like what we've seen from Barlow, and he still is not getting a ton of reps, and he's kind of getting picked over for reps. So it's like, is he gonna you know hang around? Uh, we've already seen some implication from Michael Jackson the third that he might not be around next year. Uh, Raleigh Brown is uh, another that uh, has. You know, he played uh, a couple weeks ago and, and, and still looked like he was a good player. And then now he's supposedly hurt again and he's going to shut it down. So that's a guy that you kind of wonder if he's not going to necessarily bolt and end up at Colorado or Oregon. Um, I don't foresee any of the other wide receivers necessarily leaving. But nevertheless, there, you know, is always that guy like a CJ Williams, which you don't see um, leaving ahead of time uh offensive line definitely potential there maybe some of these guys leave um andrew andrew durick is uh andre durick is still a guy that uh he's got quite a bit of eligibility left um we'll see out of that freshman group i don't think anybody would 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 vote then but then you know andrew millick is, is he potentially looking around he hasn't gotten a lot of reps uh even though he's played multiple positions uh, you know maybe he Takes a chance and, and looks around and see if he can jump into the portal. Kobe Pepe uh, was in the portal. <laughs> point and maybe still in there I don't know maybe still in there I don't know (laughs) we don't really know about him uh Dajon Benton I think has still got another year of eligibility so potentially you know because you go out and you try to get another Bear Alexander or what have you you know you are losing Keon Bars after this season and Tyrone Telelele so there will be some reps there for Benton and he has played to some extent but that's you know, possibility Corey Foreman is, uh, you know, another guy that a lot of people have circled for a while as uh, a player that's, you know, potentially gone uh, after this season. And I, I would say I wouldn't be shocked if that happens um, on, the, uh, on the other, you know, Russian defensive ends. I don't know if I see anybody else on the roster who jumps out. Uh, We haven't seen a lot of David Peavy. David Peavy looks like a defensive tackle. Uh, We haven't seen a lot of Sam Green since earlier in the season, but they're young, and I think there's been some uh, rotation there early enough in the season where they'll probably stick around. Braylon Shelby is certainly – you know, risen to the to, to the top of that pack of the, the newcomers because he's actually gotten some decent reps um, here in the past few games. So it looks like they're really excited about him. Uh, other linebackers, Chris Thompson, Jr., who actually transferred from from Auburn, um, Harrison Madden hasn't gotten a lot of reps. So there's, you know, some potential there at the linebacker position. Are you at just going qu- through the entire roster right now? <laughs> I am. A cornerback, Traquan Figgins, he's already transferred once, so I don't know that, that could he could make another hey, move he's again. He's looking
1: like he could be a starter next year. He's
0: and played, he played he's well. played more lately. So that was a guy that initially we said he's already on his way out. Uh, because his brother who was committed to USC decommitted and it just sort of looked bad. Um, We'll see how that goes. You know, maybe Trey Kwan and Anquan, maybe they end up back uh, together at USC with a change of defensive coordinator and you're able to re-recruit him and bring him back in the fold because he talks so much about wanting to play with his brother. So that was one of those things. It was sort of reading between the lines Traquan Figgins has to be gone because his brother just decommitted, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. Um, You know, there's some relationships here with, with Dante Williams and whether Dante Williams is still in the fold or not may definitely have some impact on the cornerback group, or maybe just the defensive back group in general. Uh, We've seen profit Brown get some more reps. Uh, Sierra Wright is not with the team right now, so you could kind of add him in there. So I think we're up to like six guys that, we wouldn't be surprised if they uh, left and transferred. And looking at the safety position, I think with Anthony Beavers and Zamirian Gordon, wouldn't be surprised if one of those guys transferred. So that's right at seven. That There you go. There's seven players that we've named uh, that I wouldn't be shocked at. Uh, and I think the because that's the number that the uh, listener gave, probably went through the roster as well and sort of penciled in guys that uh, you could see reasonably leaving. And the thing is, you always kind of see maybe more guys than you expect. So, yeah, the over is probably, probably pretty safe there.
1: And your no-shit date?
0: I think it has to be before the portal window opens up. So you're talking about the beginning of December. Basically, that's that's, I think, the window. I would be surprised if it wasn't made before that point. Um, But, you know, some people have pointed out it it took a while for Lincoln Riley to hire Alex Grinch, and that happened later in the year. But it's different now, I I think, with these portal windows and the fact that, I mean, USC has to be aggressive in that first portal. And for the top players, you not only have to be aggressive, but you kind of have to have your foot in the door and sort of a head start on things. And so they did get Barry Alexander, and they did get Eric Gentry, Uh, in what would be the second window. Um, I think technically Bear Alexander was the second window. There wasn't really windows when they got Eric Gentry, but I believe Eric Gentry was – yeah, that was after spring football, uh, if I recall. So they've gotten some good defensive players later in the year, post-spring ball, uh, but the majority of the contributors, I think, are usually coming in from that first window. So I think that's what you aim for. I'm not saying – it's the end of the world. If they don't sign somebody before the holidays and they don't bring that guy in. Uh, Certainly if it's a Jim Leonard, if it's a Jimmy Lake, the reasons why we've talked about those two candidates outset because they could make immediate moves, but there's other coaches that might be coaching in bowl games that might be doing some things where you, you're not going to get uh, them to make that move immediately. Uh, It just kind of depends, I guess, Um, so I, I, that would be my sort of like December 5th would be what I would want to make a decision. You made that decision to fire Alex Grinch early so you could get a head start on this and get in front of some candidates and talk with some people, get the word out, see who's interested in you, who you may not have considered, because there are some candidates like that, that you might not have really thought about that, you know. Now that you've made that move, they can say, hey, I'm going to put my feelers out. So I know of a few coaches and I know of a few potential candidates from that standpoint who are interested in the job for sure. And I don't know if, uh, you know, this kind of dragged out that they would be already at a point where they could initiate that contact. Um, Jeff Collins is another guy because he's not coaching right now. The former uh, George Tech head coach that you could make a move with immediately. So the longer it goes on, the more you wonder if it is one of those guys or there's somebody else that is coaching that cannot make that move or does not want to make that move immediately. And, of course, you know, in that situation you have buyouts that you have to consider. The the one thing that you might be able to do, and I'm not really sure how this works with, like, Jimmy Lake because he is still, I think, getting a buyout from Washington. And I'm not 100% sure how that works with what he would be doing with USC if, you know, he, he didn't have to, uh, he wouldn't be getting that money anymore or, or what have you. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there's potential with some of those guys that, you know, because they're not head coaches anymore, um, they may be able to be coordinators and still get some of that money. That's usually more of an NFL thing. You know, if you're not an NFL coach, we'll pay for such and such, you know, amount of your of your, of your your money. With, College moves, it's usually a little more looked at as a lateral move. Even if you're not a head coach, you can you get a job somewhere else, then you know we're off the hook for whatever we're having to pay you off for. It just all depends on the contract. So, you know, each of those guys, it's all individual, and I don't know their agent, so I don't know their deals.
1: Our next question comes from Composite Two Star Recruits Podcast Royalty, Joan Levis. Hi guys, this is a question about stars. We have four and five star defensive backs on the roster, all recruited well by Dante Williams. Damani Jackson and Sierra right two of the most coveted recruits of their cycle. They're playing like they don't know where to line up, who to cover, how to cover, how to tackle. Fans claim it is misevaluation and they are terrible, but I don't believe that's true. I believe it's coaching, the overall scheme, excuse me, and lack of tackling in practice. Dante was one of the best in the business at coaching secondary. What do you think is really going on here? Thanks, Joan, for the question. That, that is because the secondary has been very, very bad at times, more so uh, – well, I mean – Yeah, the, exactly.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really – it's a matter of bad versus bad and worse versus worse. And I think it's easier to see in the secondary sometimes because when you have a situation where it's just a blown coverage – it's just cornerback looking at safety, looking at cornerback. you know, Spider-Man versus Spider-Man who screwed up. And so, yeah, it's very easy to see. And they're
1: not getting any pass rush to like help them at all. So it's like they're even more vulnerable and on an Island, even more so.
0: I would say some of these games, they're getting the ball off quickly. And the, the really bad game for the secondary and you know, for the defense in general really that Washington game because they literally went to dropping eight men continuously against Washington. I mean, that they played almost in a prevent defense in that game uh, for more snaps than not and Washington was still able to throw the ball quite a bit. Washington actually had more first downs receiving than USC did. And that's just, Uh, unforgivable. So yeah, has Dante Williams all of a sudden uh, just forgotten how to coach defensive backs uh, and or are these defensive backs, cornerbacks, just bad players all of a sudden? You do also have Kalen Bullock back there, who is an All-American that many feel like should be able to sneak into the end of the first round of the draft. I would say it's a combination of a bunch of things. I, I don't know that you can point the finger at just one thing. I don't think that the players are on the same page as the coaching staff. I think there's been busted coverages and there've been some famously bad busted coverages, even earlier in the season against San Jose state where you give up a big, long touchdown because you're an inverted cover two right before half. Now, is that more Alex Grinch because he's calling the coverage or is it Dante Williams because he didn't coach the coverage? Right. I I don't know. I mean, that's again, Spider-Man when you get Spider-Man there. Um, But nevertheless, you can only have so many busts before you have to start realizing that, you know, that point, that pointed finger, that finger you got out there, you're pointing at the other guy, you got three back pointing at you. And that's sort of what happens, I think, with coaching is you can only have so many guys that are not playing to the level of expectations before it becomes one of two things. You're not preparing them properly, so they're out there on Saturdays playing fast, playing confident, and doing the right assignments, or you are misevaluating and you're not doing a good evaluation of your own roster and those players that you recruited, and you've got a bunch of guys that are overrated on your team. And nine times out of ten, because we know stars matter, it's not because you have a bunch of overrated guys. It's pretty hard to just get every five-star that was a bust uh, on your team at the same time. I don't <laughs> right. think statistically that really works out. So I, one I think, has to work. One has to work. Yeah. There need there needs to be at some point uh, some players that play well. And we've seen flashes from some of these guys. And unfortunately I will say this, that Don, demonic Jackson specifically is playing worse with more reps, which is never a good sign. This is sort of reminds me of Clay Helton and with the quarterback position and it was, Back when they had uh, Matt Barkley, they had Cody Kessler, and they had Max Wittick. And this is when Matt Barkley gets hurt right up around this time. <laughs> Playing against UCLA gets knocked out of the game. They put Max Wittick in ahead of Cody Kessler. And Max Wittick actually plays a decent game against UCLA. And then we fast forward, and he's got uh, the, the Notre Dame game is the last game of the season for them. And he plays actually pretty well against Notre Dame. And if I recall, that was the year Notre Dame went to the championship game. I think they were undefeated that year. That was the Manti-Teo defense. And I could be wrong on that, but I, I think that was the year where Notre Dame ends up actually going to the national championship game. And he plays pretty well against them. And people are kind of excited about the Max Wittick era. Like, wow, okay, yeah, Max Wittick coming from modern day uh You know, five star quarterback. He was the All-American, I think, at the Under Armour game, whereas um, the MVP of the Army All-American game was Cody Kessler. So you had two MVPs of the All-Star games coming in to USC and we get a month off and USC at that point, that was that year where it was 2012. And so they ended up in the Sun Bowl. And with a month of practice, Max Winnick couldn't throw the ball 15 yards And I know it was a cold day and it was a windy day, but I mean, the offense looked horrific and it looked like he had regressed five years in the span of a year. And that was sort of the first red flag for me and Clay Helton as a quarterback coach and a coach, where it seemed like with more coaching and more practice, some of his players got worse. And Damani Jackson looked pretty good as a freshman, uh, particularly when they used him in there against uh, Oregon State he had some really nice plays and he and he you know he he's obviously a freshman and he's swimming a little bit but they put him on man they put him against the tight ends he had some good plays there and this season you know he's shown some flashes but he's also had some times where he's just like in the wrong coverage like you know is he a good player is he fast is he big yeah but if you're in the wrong coverage you're in the wrong coverage so, again, is that all on Alex Grinch? Is that an issue where you've got Alex Grinch and you've got Dante Williams that are not doing some great things? I don't know. I, I I think that, again, it's been such a bad year defensively statistically across the board. Nobody's safe. You can make an argument to fire the whole defensive staff, and I am one of those guys that is a proponent of keeping at least one coach for continuity and recruiting purposes on a staff. But – I could not argue, I can't really play devil's advocate in a, in a, in a sincere way uh, at at any position on defense, because yeah, the secondary has played bad. I mean, played awful, like just, you know, the big plays in the second half of of games and you you can't do that. Like you cannot consistently every game, give up some just crazy big play nine times of 10. It is with the pass. They've given up some big runs, but nine times of 10 has been some bad pass. Uh, give up like, you know, against Colorado where, you know, Damani's at the, the, basically it's just a little screen pass and he misses a tackle on their freshman uh, wide receiver name. Escapes me, but I mean, he just went off. Uh, He was unstoppable against USC all of a sudden. And it was like a kid that had one reception, I think, prior to the game. Like that kind of stuff is, eh, you can't defend it, you know, Uh, literally and figuratively. And our final
1: question is a DM from Dustin. Let's piggyback off of the recent stuff about whether or not SC recruits St. John Bosco aggressively enough. If you're the local school, do you need to show up at local high schools all the time just because it becomes noticeable if you aren't there? So, for example, if you're Lincoln, at Oklahoma, you make it out to Bosco once or twice a year, you probably get credit for, quote, they came all the way out here just to see us. Whereas if you're Lincoln at SC – That narrative would be, we're in SC's backyard and they only bother coming out a couple times a year. I'm starting to wonder if that's a thing or whether or not we should prioritize hiring a DC who's had success with LA players. We'll hire assistants who get that and will be really visible locally. Dustin, that kind of hits on where you started with, with Jimmy Lake and his uh, ties to the West and maybe a staff that uh, focuses on the West Coast. But the basis of the question is, do you think... Because you are SC, you have to be at Bosco or modern day, like pretty much as much as you can, because you are the local school.
0: First, I think it's a a good question and a good point. There is something to be said for it when you are coming from out of state and Steve Sarkeesian goes to Bosco or some coach from Alabama goes to Bosco. Excuse me. It is looked at as a bigger deal. Like, oh wow, they came all the way out here. That's really cool. So on and so forth. I don't think Lincoln Riley has been to any high schools, locally or otherwise, this cycle. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I didn't get any reports uh, during the bye week, and I have not heard anybody mention that to me. So I think from that standpoint, it's kind of moot. You know, if you're not going anywhere then yeah, you're going to get criticized for that. And I think also from what's been said, it's not just not showing up at places locally because, you know, Dennis Simmons was there uh, to watch um, Xavier Jordan play in person. Uh, Some of the assistant staff during the bye week were at high school. So they were visible. Now, were they at modern day and they weren't at, uh, some other school etc you know that's always you only have so many coaches that that can uh, that can be at these games and most staffs choose not to go to high school games every week you know when, whether they're home or not. obviously if you're playing on the road you can't you know because you're on the road uh, but if you're playing at home even still in the Pete Carroll era they did not go out on Friday nights and, and recruit that was just that was walkthroughs that was film that was you know it was team time we need to prepare for this game saturday and so nine out of ten the only time you saw the coaches go out and again this is true of most staffs is during the bye week i think more of the issue that i am hearing is that the communication with these staffs is very very limited and that's not just saint john bosco that is several high schools prominent high schools We, quote, unquote, just haven't heard from USC in a long time. And so that's a bit troubling and concerning that there's not communication. And it's like, well, what kind of communication do you need? Again, I think some of this has to do with ties and connections. If you've got friends on the staff and people that you know through other people or what have you, it just might be one of those things where you just reach out to people and you're constantly talking to them you know uh, whether it's Dante Williams talking to other local coaches because they just know him you know there's definitely coaches that know him that talk to him but maybe they're just not at modern day maybe they're just not at St. John Bosco is that something that USC should prioritize to have more coaches that have those connections like Dante Williams does because I know you know Malik James at uh, Inglewood High School knows Dante Williams well I know that there's Several coaches uh, at schools, you know, whether it be Sierra Canyon, Los Alamitos, and you don't hear about how USC is not around or doesn't have a presence at those high schools. It's just more St. John Bosco, modern day Centennial, maybe Long Beach Poly. So, you know, Dante Williams is only one guy. And if he doesn't have a guy at those schools and maybe there's not a lot of conversation there with the coaches at those schools. Whereas if you had more West Coast guys and more guys with connections at various different schools with various different people. And and also, I think an important thing to point out, the support staff has connections there. Because I think from a support staff standpoint, that's not really something going on with USC right now. They don't have a lot of recruiters on their support staff. Uh, They did at one point really bolster that but under Lincoln Riley, it's been hiring more ops guys and more guys that, you know, have connections with with him or what have you. And they may have more connections from out of state. You know, they may have more connections to, to other places, which, of course, you need that, too. I mean, you need the best of both worlds. You As, as, as a staff recruiting wise, you're only going to be as good as your connections. You're only going to be as good as getting your foot in the door somewhere. And if you want to recruit. Texas or Georgia or whatever. And you, you're going to have to have those people on your staff that can get you into those recruitments and those conversations because there's just a lot that can be gleaned from a, a casual conversation with somebody that you go back with that's at a high school now. Whether it's like you know them directly because uh, you coach with them somewhere else. You know, maybe coming up and, and they went one way and you went the other way and you ended up at USC and they ended up being the defensive quarter at, coordinator at some high school, or they're the maybe athletic director at a high school now, or there's some type of family connection. There's all kinds of different ways that people have connections to these schools and to these areas, and their eyes on the ground for you. You know, they, they could sometimes give you a heads up about all kinds of different things. And we talked about this in the past, whether it's evaluation. Like, yeah, we saw this guy. Maybe there's a target that doesn't play at that school, but, you know, the coaches at that school or, you know, somebody at that school that knows football that you trust. And they say, yeah, we played against this kid the last three years and he's a bum. Like he's he's not like, dude, he's not, you know, you you're not watching the huddle and and you watch the game film and you watch. He gets penalties and he does stupid things. And then once we we put a double team on him, he didn't do anything the whole game. So, I mean, that can be the difference between all oh, day, you know, we need to really go and spin our wheels on this kid or yeah, it's not our type of dude. We need to pivot. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot more layers to this than just did Lincoln Riley show up at a game Friday or did, did, did Dennis Simmons show up here or where did Dante Williams show up here? I mean, I think certainly we, we learned how significant this was with the last staff because it was nine guys from Texas on that staff, and they had really bad connections here. And it was easy for them to just try to reinvent themselves and go to Texas and go to East Texas where people weren't really paying attention to what happened with USC now. You know, they, weren't, I mean, they really weren't up on what did USC do last season? What did USC do uh, in the last few games? It was more like Reggie Bush, uh, Matt Liner. You know the, the traditional USC, which is like, hey, you know, that's a blue blood program, that's a big deal for them to be out here. So, you kind of can use that logo and it, it has a little more leverage, maybe, in some of these places. Whereas, locally, you've got coaches and you've got alumni, and you know, man, the conversation is much different. These people are seeing exactly what's going on, maybe not in practices, but they're seeing what's going on in games every day, and they're like. Yeah, man, they, they suck now. Like, you don't want to go there. <laughs> so these kids locally are hearing that over and over again. So you're almost kind of forced to go somewhere else. Uh, this staff doesn't have that much of a, you know, like one place. But, yeah, there's certainly a lot of Texas love and there's a lot of connections there. And they're going in the DFW and they're trying to recruit that area aggressively. It's hard because everybody does. Um, and you know, if you're going to be successful doing it, then you kind of have to get guys and get them to the NFL and that whole sort of process. And now NIL is the other aspect of this, which is becoming a factor for more and more players. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different angles that come into play when it comes to Local recruiting and, you know, is it even a big deal whether you have a presence at a school or not? Certainly, you know, T. Martin went out of his way. T. Martin wasn't from California. T. T. Martin didn't have any uh, links or connections to the West Coast before he came and started working with Lane Kiffin. But T. Martin was a dog recruiter. He was an elite recruiter. He was a guy that was going to figure it out. He would worked the Nike camps. He had a lot of connections to a lot of high school coaches through those Nike camps. And he did use that to a certain extent when he got out here to make calls, get lunch, get dinners and get his ears and eyes at places even when he wasn't there. And one of those places was Sarah High School. And USC absolutely dominated recruiting Sarah High School when it mattered because they had guys that were good players. So, you know, it really was a big deal. Now, you could say, well, do you need to have that at St. John Bosco? You know, how many of these kids from St. John Bosco are, are going on in the NFL? They've had some guys. They've had some good players. I mean, they've got Ernest Green right now starting left tackle at, uh, at Georgia. In uh, modern day, we'll have their guys too. And, and people are quick to say, well, how many guys that modern day – had that were four star five star guys actually turned out to be good players and went to the NFL look at not all of them, but I think we've seen over I'd say the last five to seven years the talent has consolidated more at those two schools than it ever has before. there's less schools that have talent uh than ever before it's it's more consolidated at modern day at Bosco and really this is going to be something we're going to see going forward with nil because Those are programs that are going to be able to pay players and find deals for them. And so when we look at the 2027 class, it's like, man, you know, at that under the radar camp that I covered, there was like so many kids. I mean, I I don't want to put a percentage on it, but yeah, out of like 200 kids. There's probably, God, 15 to 20 of them that were all going to modern day. Like that's a lot of guys that are top end players at those at, at, at that level that are going to one school. And so that's the OC Buckeyes program. That's the IE Ducks program. That's Rampage. That's all those different high school programs sending kids to modern day. And so, you know, in terms of the ratio and the probability that they're going to have some good players, they may there may be some busts in there for sure, but you're going to probably find some Bryce Youngs and some other guys like Matt Grunegaard. They're going to have some good players. And so ignoring or trying to say, well, you know, they're all overrated. You know, how many guys have turned out? That's a little copium. That's a little bit of a, yeah, we, we don't want those guys anyway, sort of thing. You know, we have higher academic standards. That's was, that was, By the way, I don't know, we even talked about that, but that, that Dr. Pepper commercial about a realignment where the guy's breaking up with the girl. Have you seen that? You've seen that, right? That yeah, with the transfer portal reference and all that. That's the, the the last line there from the guy when he's on the bus was just oh god it was so good it's so it was really so UCLA but it just reminded me of just about any fan base which you've got some good academic uh, standards and and you've got a, a good degree you know it's always like yeah but the girl goes yeah we're gonna out recruit you and he goes yeah but we but, but it's one of those like frantic but but we have higher academic standards copium copium that is copium
1: <laughs> it is probably like. The best, like most honest uh Fansville kind of commercial when when you take into account like all the – The things. look on his
0: face is just – it just reminds yeah. me of everybody that gets on a message board and posts something like that. It just cracked me up. Gerard, that is the end of our
1: questions. That is the end of our show. Our final late night show of the 2023 Don't say season. that, Chris. I've already counted the chickens. I said it at the top. All the all the old, baskets all nine eggs, and a half of them, all nine and a half of those chicken eggs are ready to go, accounted for, labeled. It's done deal. It's a done deal, Gerard. We're 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 done. It's late night, it's thing of the past. Just like Garage Martinez is a thing of the past. You and would, I don't know. It might not be
0: a thing of the past if uh, we can't do these when uh, the tribe is asleep, because if the tribe is up and around they will be heard the the old, the old saying, uh, children should be seen, not heard, not in this house, not in this house,
1: <laughs> not in that house. Indeed. Gerard, that's going to wrap it up. I hope you have, uh, and your Merry niece Christmas. have a good, uh, birthday, uh, good birthday party, uh, this weekend. I hope that I don't get too soaked from the rain this weekend in the Coliseum. I hope the rain stays away from, uh, your niece's birthday party, but, that's all I got on this show. Thank you again for listening. And thank you again if you made it to the end of another long episode. I am Chris. That is Gerard. And we will catch you next time on Composite Two-Star Recruits. Yeah, Blackboard sucks!